Welcome back. We'll get into a little off-season chatter. Now that we have UConn crowned as our national champs, I think there's no better place to start than with looking at our teams that we know and love so dearly. And I think I'll let you kick it off with Marquette. I know of a, of the short list of our teams, they're probably in the best position right now. So what's just the general outlook looking for the, the Golden Eagles going into the offseason right now? Um, I mean, yeah, it's a great outlook going into the offseason. I think with a lot of like way too early preseason top 25s that you're seeing, they're like a consensus top five team, which like a couple years ago, like you never really would have expected, um, especially um, like as a Marquette fan, it kind of felt like we hit rock bottom a few years ago. Um, no disrespect to Steve Wojciechowski, but like he was, he was a great recruiter. Um, he's, he did a good job establishing relationships with his players. That's definitely a core value for Shaka right now too. Um, but, but he underachieved and no other way to put it. And the first thing I want to start off by saying is that Shaka Smart has done an incredible job um, establishing the culture and kind of rebuilding the program again, uh, just getting it back towards the top of the Big East and a nationally relevant program. Um, I think a lot of people on the surface, it, it seems like a disappointing season for like a non-Marquette fan, non um, like someone who wasn't really paying attention to like, would say, oh, they lost in the round of 32, Tom Izzo, uh, tough draw, but they lost in the round of 32. That's a tough season, which obviously it was a disappointing tournament, but this was an unbelievable season for Marquette. Like I can't emphasize that enough. We were picked uh, ninth in the Big East, finished first in the regular season, the Big East regular season title, doubled down on that, winning the Big East tournament championship, uh, beating St. John's, beating UConn national championship on that national championship. Uh, team on that path and then beating Xavier in the championship blowing them out um, this was a lot different than past Marquette teams and this team played so well um, because of their connectivity they played so well because of their team chemistry and camaraderie um, I love Marcus Howard but it wasn't like the, a one-man show anymore where one person scoring 50 points it was an unpredictable attack every single night in offense um, you never knew whose night it was going to be I was Tyler Coelho's night Tyler Coelho's night a lot also with Godaro Olivia Maxson's prosper, even David Joplin off the bench. He had a 28 game against uh point game against the Paul one time. Uh, even Stevie Mitchell, our defensive specialist, he had some games like at Villanova, for example, where he was dropping, I think like 17 that game. He was the support plug that we needed. Um, yeah, I guess I guess you're asking more about uh the off season. It's really resilient. It's a fun team to watch, and I think um what's worth mentioning is that. Like we talked about this earlier, I think it's the last episode now, because uh, it's the second episode. But basically, the reason this team was so good was because Shaka trusted his players. It was all built around continuity, even though this was like the fourth youngest power conference team in the country and they were picked ninth in the Big East. Shaka trusted the vision he had in his players. This team played so well as a team. Um, and what's even more exciting for next year is that even though Marquette had such a great offense, this is the team that brands themselves in their defense. They're more of a defensive-minded team. Um, obviously, Marquette fans know about Nevada Smith, assistant coach. He's like an offensive guru, and he's what made this offense so good. Not just him, but he's a big reason why. Um, this team forces turnovers really well. They kind of wear you out with the pressure uh, throughout the game. They wear you out on both ends of the floor. Like number six, uh, Frank Taylor came into uh, Milwaukee in November, and Marquette first 20 turnovers on them, like a, a team with a lot of great guards, a lot of poised players, and they were able to do that. I think that was a very telling sign. 
Um, but yeah, I've been I've been rambling a lot. Let me just get into this <laughs> next this next season. Um, I think uh, just kind of emphasizing the trusting your own players. This is a team that had only one top 100 recruit last year, and Stevie Mitchell, and he was like a defensive specialist. He's very good offensive player, but his role was more of a defensive specialist. And next year, kind of getting all I'd say nine, ten guys in the rotation that they had back. Maybe also Iguodaro and Olivia Maxson's prosper test NBA waters, but I think they'll be back. Uh, so you're getting the whole rotation back. You're getting the number 23 recruiting class in the country. A great recruiting, a great coaching staff, sorry. Um, and still there's a lot of room for improvement on defense. This is a team that, like, like I said, even though they're a defensive-minded team, they still weren't like that. They still had their flaws on defense, no doubt. And But I think the biggest weakness and the biggest need for this team next year uh, was a lack of size and rebounding. They weren't as physical as a lot of Big East teams were. They still found ways to win, but they needed to be more physical. They needed better rebounding. They needed more size. So here is offseason plan for Marquette. Here are some portal targets I think they should go after. It's worth mentioning that it's not really Shaka Smart's style to get those flashy guys. He doesn't really like going to the transfer portal. There's no transfers on this last year team besides Zach Reitzel, who is um, a division two or is a no excuse me he was an NAIA transfer and unfortunately for him he had a knee injury couldn't play this year so there were no transfers on last year's Marquette team um, it's not really Shaka's thing he trusts his players it all comes back to his core values of relationships growth and victory and relationships and growth are a big part of are a big reason why he doesn't go to the transfer portal because he wants to do it his way he wants to do his style having said that though I think Marquette should go to the transfer portal for a big guy um, and the targets that I have are the first one is um, from Charlotte uh, Ali Khalifa I think he'd be a great fit um, apparently some analysts have called him the Nikola Jokic of college basketball I think that's uh-huh. obviously a little far-fetched but sounds like a special player a... <laughs> yeah um, the CBI champions Charlotte so I guess He's come from a winning culture, and I think he'd be a great fit. Um, also, Godaro, I think, also makes a good p- case now I think about it. If you consider the Nikola Jokic of college basketball, he's not as much of a shooter, obviously, but he he's one of the best passing big men in the country, one of the best uh, ball-handling bigs in the country. Um, the next target I have is um, Stanford's Harrison Ingram. He's a 6'7 wing. He's an athletic wing. He's not a big man, but I think he would really fit well in Shaka's system at a fast pace and provide some rebounding as well. Uh, the third one I mentioned, um, a third one I wrote down was uh, Nevada's Will Baker. He's a seven-foot big man, uh, averaged 14 points a game last, next year. And the connection there, obviously he's a big man, but the connection there was that he originally committed to Shaka, uh, Shaka Smart when Shaka Smart was coaching Texas. Uh, and last one, um, I'm in a, a group chat with some Marquette people, and I asked them who they would like to see. Uh, and they mentioned the consensus there was uh, Jamarion Sharp from Western Kentucky. He's seven foot five, so obviously, oh, yeah. I assume he's the tallest player I mean, in the a, country. A lot of people want to get him. Yeah, the whole whole country is going to be calling for him. So I guess that would be maybe a long shot there, but never know. Maybe maybe we'll get him. Um, I mean, I think we'll probably get one of these other other guys that I mentioned if we offer them. Um, we did offer Khalifa the Nikola Jokic I was talking about. Um, and then I wrote down, like, I would love to see, like, Shaka try to go for the jackpot and go for, like, Khalil Ware 
uh, Oregon. I think he could be an NBA lottery pick in the future. Um, I want Illinois to go from two. We'll talk about that later. Um, Hunter Dickinson, uh, Michigan, probably the best player on the transfer portal this year and maybe sometime. Probably ever. Yeah, I think I'm not disagreeing with you there. It definitely makes a good case to be the best transfer ever. That was very surprising that he left Michigan. Um, and then the one is Graham E.K. from Wyoming. Um, talked about him more. Talked about Wyoming on the last episode, but um, he was a big reason why that team was so good last year. Um, yeah, but like I said, I don't think he'll target those big gems in the transfer class. He's going to stick with his style of well, I mean, development. And do you think these players are going to want to come to Marquette? I mean, I feel like the biggest thing Marquette is going for them is they have all this continuity with all their main rotation guys coming. Like, do you think, mm-hmm. well, I mean, what's the pitch if you're Marquette? I mean, obviously, you can say you're going to play in a good team, which obviously it's going to mean a lot. I think that's a lot of the reason UConn had so much success was they were able to get, like, Joey California, a couple transfers to buy in and be a be big role players at the bench. But, like, do you think, like, I know you said, like, you would be interested in making, like, you think it would be cool to get, like, a Hunter Dickinson to PLW or, like, make a splash? But, like, why would those guys come to Marquette if they already have their main rotation set? Or do you think he would change it up? That's a good question. I don't think it will change it up. And it may, I think putting it that way, I don't think Hunter Dickinson or any, like, the older guys in the veteran portal, like, I don't think the really the grad transfers that are big-time players would be a good fit because, like you said, Shaq is all about continuity. He's all about developing his players. But I think what the – I think if you ask that question to any of the coaching staff or – any of the players, the first thing they would tell you is that the relationships they have with the with the rest of the team, like the the three core values as I just alluded to, uh, Marquette team is relationships, growth, and victory. And if you hear these guys, all these post game preference interviews, um, like all the time, they always talk about like what makes this team so special. And the first answer that these guys say is the relationships they have with each other, which it sounds cliche, but like it really is a part of their core values. And I think there's just a level of buy-in that you feel when you watch this Marquette team play. So I think the older guys, there's much less of a pitch because you're not really going to develop active relationship with the rest of the team in just a year. And you're not going to have the role that you want. Um, you're not going to have the big-time role that you want when the rest of the rotation is pretty much settled. So I guess the pitch there would be if you're a younger guy, you're going to develop in a good program. You're going to be with a lot of um, great surrounding talent, obviously. Tyler Kolick's a point guard. I think anyone would want to play for. Um, also, Igadaro is one of the most uh, unique big men in the country. I think he'd be a good fit with a lot of big men. Um, and I think just playing under Shaka Smart is something that all these players appreciate. Having a good coach in college basketball is is kind of you can't really replicate that um, with a lot of if a team doesn't have a good coach. So, long story short, I think it all comes down to. Like relationships you have with the other players, you're gonna have you're gonna develop really well. You're gonna experience a lot of growth in this program. Like Shaka reaches his full potential with the team, and I think with these players as well, they're gonna reach their full potential playing under Shaka Smart. So I think it all kind of it revolves around. Long story short, it just kind of revolves around playing around uh, Shaka Smart. Yeah, that's that's the biggest part. Yeah, I mean, I think it's definitely an intriguing pitch. I mean, I feel like you've seen it. I think a lot of the, like I said with UConn, a lot of the teams that you see have this sort of success is because they are able to get these guys to buy in. And it sounds like they have a lot of buy-in. But I think one more question I have for you is, do you think, obviously it sounds like they have, at least have been inquiring about certain guys in the transfer portal. 
just like obviously every team at this point you're, you you got to do your due diligence like you're looking into guys you're fielding offers that sort of thing but do you think they need to make any pickups or do you think they're good enough as is like obviously they're getting all the way too early whatever rankings have them as a top five team and i think vegas has them as top five six whatever team in like odds wise but like do you think all things considered right now, are they good enough with their current talent level to compete for a national championship? Um, short answer, I would say yes, but with caution right now, because also so much is going to change this offseason. Like, obviously, like we see, like there's a million guys entering the, tra- entering the transfer portal every single day. Um, but I think the reason that they're in all those preseason top five, they're like, in the consensus rankings is because they have the highest floor right now. But if they get the transfer that they need, that they ha- then they have the highest ceiling. Because um, like they have, like they play so well as a team and they're really special. But what is concerning is that they don't really have, have enough size and enough rebounding. They don't play with the physicality that they should. So there is a lot of room for improvement next year on the defensive end, uh, rebounding, of course. Rebounding is definitely the biggest need and size. Like like I said it a couple of times now, but they just really need that. And if they get that in the transfer portal, then I think, yes, they have one of the highest things in the country. And you could safely, or you can't put anyone safely, but you could you can put them in that national championship contender category. So I would say right now, I'll say yes with caution, but you'd have to ask me that again before the season. And if they get another, they, they, if they get a piece in the transfer portal, then it's a very complete team. So uh, I'll say yes. Yeah, I think that's a good way to put it. I mean, I feel like just like with how they performed this past season and returning all that talent, I think they're definitely a high floor team. I mean, I feel like it's hard to kind of envision a scenario where this team just completely falls off the rails. Like, obviously, it's not unheard of for a team to be ranked highly and fall off. But I think just like with the players that they are and the system that's in place, I feel like it would be hard to imagine Marquette being not at the bare minimum a top 25 team, you know? I think the counter argument behind that is like best example last year is on North Carolina. Like they had brought everyone back. They went to the championship. Yeah. Um, There was some, I'm just going to, before you go too far into that, I'm just going to say, I think North Carolina is completely different because I saw North Carolina the way I looked at North Carolina going into the season as well was they were a team that had a good run in March, but they were not good the whole season like Marquette was. I mean, obviously Marquette, it's not like they had like a, like a perfect season. Like they had their ups and downs as well, but just the way they dominated the big East, I think tells me they're a legit team. North Carolina was struggling in a down year in the East in the, ACC and just put it together for, I guess, five and a half games. Wasn't enough to get it done, but had a good run. You know? Yeah, that's a really good point. Um, That kind of reminds you of like UCLA the year before, uh, the first four 11 seed, make it over the final four. I think they still made it to the Sweet 16 next year, but like, yeah, uh, everyone expected them to be like a, a top five everyone's expecting to be like the title contender and they didn't really they kind of fit the same criteria that North Carolina did just kind of capturing lightning in a bottle a little bit and not continuing that level of success that they had in a 
like a single light, single limit, single elimination tournament, and then carrying it on to a, a whole season. It's really difficult to do. Um, but the reason I did bring up the North Carolina team is because like this team, this Marquette team has always played with a chip on their shoulder. They're always kind of played the underdog role, even when they're at their best. And like, you would think that the, like the expectations could get on them a little bit. It could be a little intimidating. I don't think shop is a good job of making it all about them and not about like the outside noise. Um, but yeah, I think when you have teams that play together before, you have more film on them. Um, a lot of times you know how they're going to attack you. I think the biggest difference, even more so than um, like with UNC and Marquette, is that with North Carolina, you kind of know how they're going to attack you every single time. Like it's going to be Caleb Love taking inefficient shots sometimes, but Caleb Love, he's going to take a lot of shots. They're going to feed Armando Bake out in the post. RJ Davis is the facilitator, but then besides that, you kind of they're very they're a very predictable team, and I think what makes Marquette different is that like you they're very unpredictable on a nightly basis. Like like I implied earlier, like you never know whose night's going to be like like get back on defense in transition. Like you don't know who to pick up, you don't know who's going to score. It's a very unpredictable team. It's a very hard team to scout. I guess is what I'm trying to say, and they have really good team chemistry in North Carolina, like off the court. Apparently, like uh rj davis apparently Kayla Love's girlfriend was cheating on him with rj davis and like once that type of stuff happens like it reflects how you play on the court when the team isn't as close yeah apparently um, all hate each of, other <laughs> yeah, like, apparently the, yeah apparently they were very close and then so i think we'll talk more about it later but i think Caleb loves could be really good next year but he wasn't at this point with north carolina it's much better to have that addition by subtraction for them um yeah, but yeah, I guess they couldn't run back the same team after the year they had. I mean, obviously you saw yeah. their ceiling, but after you after the wheels kind of fell off, ceiling had to give. Definitely. Um, but yeah, I think Shaka Smart has done a great job rebuilding the program in just two years. He talked about his press con the his opening press conference two years ago, how the first two years are all about establishing the culture. He did a great job of that. And not only did he establish the culture, he did a great job having team success at simultaneously. So I think Shaka yeah. Smart is a great fit for Marquette. Um, and Marquette's a great fit for Shaka Smart. Um, it's a very, very bright future. And I'm really excited about uh, this team, this, this next year's team. This is the most excited I've been, just like Marquette, if I want to probably tell you, this is the most excited I've been about Marquette since probably 2013, back in the, the Vander Blue days where he brought us the Elite Eight. Yeah, I mean, this is definitely the most high, most hype excitement I feel like they've had in a long time going into the season. Definitely. Um, yeah, I mean, there's a lot more I can touch on, but this is a pretty... I think you could talk about Marquette forever. I think you... <laughs> yeah. I tried, to, I tried not to get my too carried away in, like, all the different thoughts, but I basically, it's a very similar team to last year. They're on the right trajectory going forward. And I think everyone kind of knows what this team is and uh, has a similar perspective on this Marquette team going into next year. Um, all right, so with that being said, would you like to talk about uh, Gonzaga? What is your outlook for next year? Where do they go in the post-Drew Timmy era? How does Mark Few um, assemble all this talent he has in the recruiting class? Um, what does he do with Malachi Smith from Chattanooga? I know he, he came last year, um, averaged about nine points again this year. He could have a big role, but 
enough about me talking about Gonzaga. You're the Gonzaga fan. What do you think about the team? Yeah, so obviously this past year, down year for Gonzaga, at least by the Gonzaga standard that's been set the last years coming into it. Team ultimately ended up overperforming, making the Elite Eight. I mean, not a huge overperform, but if you told me that they would have made the Elite Eight after some of the games they played early on, I would have said you're crazy. So I was ultimately happy with the way the season went. Sad way to go down just to get rocked, but everyone got rocked by UConn. We weren't, we were in the majority of, we weren't like, didn't make us unique that we got blown out. We were just, just like everyone else, which is fine. It is what it is. But yeah, going into the offseason, Drew Timmy has unofficially called it a college career. He's gone on his podcast and publicly stated it that he won't come back. But technically has not made the official decision, but for the sake of this, I'm going to take his word for it and say Drew Timmy era is over at Gonzaga. One of the best sags ever if not the best, but it's definitely going to be, I'm not going to call it a rebuild year for Gonzaga, but it's definitely going to be a retool at the very least. I mean, it's definitely the least year-to-year continuity they've had in a long time. Uh, They've already had three players enter the transfer portal, and I don't expect two of them weren't really in the rotation, but I think there was kind of a sense that these were players that were going to step up and become a part of the rotation moving forward. So obviously those two guys are Dominic Harris, who has had a lot of injuries at his time at Gonzaga, but honestly, one of his biggest roles was he was pretty instrumental in the recruiting of Jalen Suggs and Chad Holmgren, which kind of changed the whole tide at Gonzaga. It's kind of becoming a perennial powerhouse program, but yeah, sad to see him go. I mean, he's been in the program for three years, and I feel like next year he was hurt pretty much as all of his first two years, and this was his third year. But next year was kind of the first year he expected him to get some tick, but whatever. Clearly he wasn't going to get it. I mean, otherwise I assume he would have stayed considering he stuck with it this long. And then Upton Reed, who was actually one of the, the biggest transfer they got last offseason. He was a former five-star who was at LSU. Didn't have a great freshman year and kind of went to Gonzaga to reinvent himself. Was supposed to be the backup center behind Timmy going into the year, but then got beat out by Ben Gregg, who I'll talk about in a second, as the backup main backup big. And then the third transfer, which is the one that hurts the most, obviously, is Hunter Salas, who has actually been pretty oh. instrumental on in the last two teams, but ultimately... He was, he's, I mean, he's been off the bench the last few years, but been one of their main guys off the bench. And I think people thought he was going to step in a starting role next year, which does make me think they're still waiting on two big decisions with that of Malachi Smith and Anton Watson, who both have one year of eligibility left. The Hunter Salas transferring thing makes me optimistic. Malachi Smith will come back. Otherwise, I'm not sure why he would leave unless he's just upset that you didn't give him a starting spot this year. But I think he'll be back. Uh, Julian Strother also hasn't announced it yet, but he should leave. He's going to be a first-round NBA draft pick. And to me, if you're a first-round NBA draft pick, you should leave because that's two years guaranteed in millions and you're in the NBA. Like, 
hard to pass up on that. So I'm expecting for sure Strother, Timmy, Salas, and out of the guys in the rotation gone. And then of potential guys that were in the wings, Harris is gone, Afton Reed's gone. So that leaves Nolan Hickman, who I would expect to be the starting point guard again. And he honestly had a pretty up and down year. Wasn't he was not phenomenal. I mean, former five star guy too, but he kinda hasn't been able to step up and be the lead guard. But hopefully another offseason you can kind of put it together. I mean, I'm expecting him and Malachi Smith to be the two main guards. And then Anton Watson if he comes back, who I think is one of the most underrated players, maybe in Gonzaga history, kind of just like the ultimate glue guy and kind of the unsung hero of a lot of these last teams. Just because, I mean, he's not, he can't really, he's not a great shooter, but he's just a great athlete, great rebounder, been their best defender, and just doesn't get a lot of the credit because he doesn't really play a flashy style of game. But he's been a huge guy for them and been a huge part of their success. And getting him back will be a big indication of the type of year they're going to expect to have next year, I think. But I think as of right now, you're expecting those two guards. Let's for the sake of this, let's hope Anton Watson comes back. And then Ben Gregg, who was the backup center this year and really emerged as a honestly a really good player. I think he was not someone people kind of expected to be at. He, like, it was just, just have a huge impact that Gonzaga, but he's kind of been a great backup big, kind of yin yang Timmy. I mean, neither of them are unreal defenders, but he was a better defender than Timmy. And could stretch the floor. Hit one was actually one of the rest three point shooters. And then besides that, though, there's a lot of question marks on this roster. They have this guy they got from Korea halfway through the season last year. I believe his name is Yeo, who was supposed to be awesome. I haven't really, I haven't watched him play, but I've heard, I've seen a lot of articles, a lot of videos of him that are hyping him up. So I'm excited about him. I know Gonzaga's had a lot of success with international players in the past. And they also have uh, Braden Hoff, who went to Glen Bard West in Illinois. So he had a year waiting in the wings. I think he'll be in the rotation next year. Uh, they have this guy, uh, an Aussie, actually, Dusty Stormer, all-time name player. So definitely has the potential to be a great basketball, great college basketball player with that name. Who's going to be a freshman well. this year? Good size. I think he's 6'8, six, 6'9 six, is a pretty long wingspan. Good athlete. So it will be an interesting year. I mean, I think they have a lot of raw pieces that they're going to have to fit together. And I'm also expecting them to be very active in the transfer portal. I mean, obviously, they have losing multiple guys to the NBA. Um, and uh, Rasir Bolton's graduating too. I didn't mention him. He was a starter this past year. So he's gone. So it's three, at least three starters gone, maybe four. And then you have two other guys transferring out. So, I mean, definitely going to be a big change. I mean, they're going to go in the transfer portal. I think anytime I've seen any player in the portal, there's said Gonzaga's had a conversation with them. So at this point, it's really anyone's guess who they're going to get. But I would expect them to bring in at least two, maybe three guys out of the portal. It's just a question of this is going to be high-impact players that they're going to look to immediately insert into the starting lineup, or if it's going to be more like role players that they let the guys that have been there shine and then either eventually work their way up 
sort of like Malachi Smith, who went from a SoCon player of the year to six-man role this past year in Gonzaga. But if he comes back, we'll definitely earn the right to start. So it should be interesting. I don't really – I mean, honestly, they've literally been linked to every name. I mean, all the any big name that's into the portal – I see, like, you know how, like, on Twitter, it's like, blah, 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 all these schools have been in contact with them. Like, Gonzaga is literally on every list. So, mm-hmm. should be interesting. They're, they've been pretty low on all the rankings and, like, odds that I've seen, but I wouldn't count them out yet. I mean, they've been able to retool before when it seemed like things were lost. And I think that's honestly one of the most impressive things about Gonzaga is that they're a small school in Spokane, Washington, and they've been able to reload for these past, I don't know, really since that the 2017 was kind of this. I mean, they were a one, two seed in 2015. And then that was that was the start of their sweet 16 streak. And obviously they have made it eight straight years since then. So they've been able to figure it out regardless. So I have confidence that Mark Few will get the guys they need to get back and maybe it won't be a championship expectation season like it's been the last few years but they're definitely going to be super competitive and i think they'll end up still being a very strong team yeah wow man you i think you covered it all man like i think even before 2015 when they're on that sweet 16 run every single year they still were a great program and even before that they're like a top 10 team pretty consistently i remember in 2013 they were seeing the tournament um, even before that, even for those years, they were top 10 teams, like I mentioned. Um, I wrote down a few questions while you were going over all that. You actually started to answer a lot of those questions towards the end. But I think uh, the first question I have is like, what route do you think that, Mark's view, that Mark View takes this offseason? Um, do you think he is acting the transfer portal or do you think he kind of trusts the abundance of talents that he, abundance of talent that he has, tries to develop them and kind of more surprised to establish continuity down the road or does he try to really put all the pieces together for this year and really try to go for the championship run this year again or are they good enough to win a championship with the talent they already have that's another question to be had too yeah I mean I think that's a good question honestly I think a lot of it depends on who they're able to bring back so like I said I'm assuming Timmy Strother I mean they haven't declared yet but I'm assuming they're gone Anton Watson, I think, coming back is really the key piece of whether they're going to be a championship contender or not. I think if he's gone, it would be very hard to see them being in that conversation, regardless of any other players that they bring in. But I think if you get Anton Watson back, like I said, I, I love the guy. He's actually a, he's a Spokane native. He's a hometown kid. So I wouldn't be surprised if he comes back. But... I mean, I've seen them linked with every name, like I said. I, I mean, I've even seen them linked with Hunter Dickinson, who would kind of be awesome if he came to Gonzaga. It would just be – for some reason, everyone hates Drew Timmy. I mean, I feel like he's not that hateable. I mean, I guess I see why he's hateable. I'm not going to say I don't see that. But if they just I'm go a- from – if they go from Drew Timmy to Hunter Dickinson, it would kind of be incredible. And I think yeah, that would yeah. – if they get a guy like Hunter Dickinson, although I do like Ben Gregg, I think he can develop into a really good player. If you get Hunter Dickinson, who was in player of the year conversations at uh, one point down the line in his career, all of a sudden you're definitely back in that conversation. And we'll see. I mean, I think they have a lot of inexperience, but I think honestly, the one thing that 
this team really lacked was kind of guard experience. Uh, like, I mean, obviously Malachi Smith played. I was a, technically a senior or whatever. I don't even know his eligibility story because I think he has taken a red shirt and transfer year or whatever. But like Nolan, Nolan Hickman, Hunter Salas, like none of the, the although they were sophomores, they didn't really play much as freshmen. They didn't really have that experience in big games. And I think Hickman, after being in the starting point guard for a full year now and playing in big March Madness games, and he honestly, I mean, he got benched a lot in the tournament. He was not a lot, he was not finishing games a lot, but I think it was a good learning opportunity for him. And I think this is a big offseason for him to kind of take the reins and make it his team. And I think having that experience backcourt that's now had a decent March experience themselves, go making an elite eight run. I wouldn't count them out. I just think I'm not sure they have an elite level scorer without Timmy or Julian Strother. And whether that's in the transfer portal or someone they develop in-house, which is like I said, like the Korean kid hasn't played at all, obviously. Uh, the Australian kid they're bringing in hasn't played at all. Braden Huff hasn't played at all. I mean, these are ton- these guys don't have experience. They don't necessarily know exactly what they have. And they have a couple other recruits I think I'm just blanking on too. But I think they need they're gonna need a go-to scorer, and I'm not sure if it's on their roster at the moment, just based on what I've seen from them in the past. And I'm not saying any of the players they have can't develop into that. It's certainly a possibility because they have a ton of talent in-house. But to I think at least go into the season as a title contender, they're gonna to have to bring someone in that they know can be a go-to scorer. Yeah, that's very thorough, well thought answer. Um I think it's kind of you kind of assume that Julian Strother is gonna go right to the NBA, which it would make sense because he's a first round pick. But I think one of the biggest positives of the NIL era is that a lot of these guys, they stay in school because of they're making a lot of money. They have a chance to compete for a championship still. Um, maybe it's a little different in this case because he kind of has a more secure NBA career ahead of him, it looks like. But I wouldn't be that surprised if he came back. He could be that go-to scorer that uh, Gonzaga needs. And um, with all that being said, like even though like it's a lot of moving pieces, a lot of a lot of uncertainty and question marks around this team, this that's the best possible problem that you could have. It's just having almost too much talent per se. Like they have so much in-house talent. They're linked to all the transfers that you kind of mentioned that um, they're linked to every single big time transfer and all those lists that John Rothstein puts out or any transfer really puts out really. But I think um, when you have a coach like Mark Few, like you would think that he can put it all together and not just like, not just have a championship contending team this year, but kind of build the foundation of, the post Drew Timmy era for years to come as well. So I think um, it's a problem to have. We'll see how Gonzaga does this, does this year. It's a big offseason ahead of them for sure. Uh, but it's a bright future, no doubt. Yeah, I, I think if Julian's brother comes back, it's over. They're going to win it all. But yeah, I mean, I think that'd be better than getting any transfer because he's played for Mark Few these past couple of years. Oh, 100%. Yeah, if they get Strother back, I mean, I think that's the number one thing. You get Strother and you get well now we're just talking we're just talking dream scenario. You get Strother and Anton <laughs> Watson back and you bring in Hunter Dickinson to replace Timmy, you have a national title. 
maybe yeah, favorite. And then you still I mean, have what? Ben Gregg, Braden Hoff, and the Oz, and then you got your foreign guys off the bench, and that's a good, that's a solid nine-man rotation. But like you said, I think honestly the biggest thing with these guys transferring out is they just had such an abundance of talent, and like ultimately, like just with the way things are now in the transfer portal, like guys if they don't play are going to leave, and that's just the reality, and like it sucks. It's like you get attached, even the guys that don't play, like you get attached to it in some regard. You're like, oh, like, you know, like they've been there. But like you gotta understand that like you can only put up with it for so long. Like and sometimes even if like you are gonna play more, like you've been you know you're not the coach's guy at this point. Like you're better off going somewhere yeah. else trying to do your own thing. Definitely. I get that. Like like you could you could transfer somewhere without having hard feelings of where you left. Like you can enjoy your time wherever you transfer from. You could like have, have like lifelong relationships with the coaches and the teammates and become better even without playing. But ultimately, like ultimately these guys are playing. Most of these guys are going to play college basketball because they want to play. And a lot of these guys, they'd rather have more years of having a bigger role than just kind of sticking with the program and then maybe having a, a role being a role player their senior year that's not really as much of an ideal path for a lot of these transfers so I definitely understand uh we'll get more into it later about the transfer portal but I definitely understand why more players are transferring nowadays yeah I mean I think just like to add on to that I think like a lot of the like the the stereotypes about like when the transfer portal like started and like NIL and all that was just like oh the big schools are going to take everyone but I think honestly like like you're seeing like with Gonzaga and with other big schools, like they're getting so many guys that like ultimately they just can't have all of them. And then you're getting guys that are at those schools that then transfer back to, I guess like lower, I mean, not like lower tier. Cause like, I don't know where Hunter Salas or whoever are going to end up, but like going from like the top, top programs to lower level programs. And like, it does create more parity ultimately. I think when you're just have the flexibility for these guys to kind of find their spots. I completely agree. I think that's actually my main argument. I have I'm very pro NIL. I think the main argument behind it is that it does create more parity because especially for one, I think you can kind of compare this better in college football than college basketball, but like how much more dominant is like Alabama gonna get, Georgia gonna get, Ohio State gonna get? I think NIL kind of it gives teams that it kind of it gives them more leverage. It levels the playing field a little bit. You can kind of be like I'm trying to give a good example, but like um, there's a lot of guys that instead of being just another guy at they say Duke or UNC, they can kind of be like a big fish in a small pond at like a, a lesser known power conference team and still be a, a really be still be on a really good team. Um, but yeah, I think it definitely creates a lot more parity in college basketball. I, I have a lot of thoughts on that, but I know it's on our agenda later to talk about the NIL and the transfer portal. So We'll leave it at that for now. Um, anything more you want to say about Gonzaga? Oh, actually, before I say that, I, I'm studying abroad with a lot of Gonzaga or Gonzaga students, and I was told it's you have to say Gonzaga. Like I, whenever I say Gonzaga, they, they make fun of my Chicago accent. So I, I've been I told to say Gonzaga. I don't think that's a Chicago accent. I say Gonzaga. It's it's simple. Yeah. They're the Zags, but they're not the Zags. That's the easiest way to remember it. Yeah. I just think of it like zigzag. Um, but yeah, I felt like that was worth my name because people from Gonzaga told me I was pronouncing it. Oh, you just incorrectly. said it wrong again. That was terrible. 
yeah it's it's too much of a habit and now I made sure to catch myself before the end of pronouncing Gonzaga correctly yeah, so um but yes I didn't think what you want to add or is it uh it's covered a lot or is that all good I'm all good there you tell you tell me about your fighting line it's been a, been a rough stretch for them yeah, I mean, it was roller coaster year last year for the Illini. I think it's already been a roller coaster off season, and I'm fully expecting next year to be a roller coaster as well. Um, I think in terms of last year, I think the coaching staff did have a good plan of trying to be like a modern basketball team, having a team that could switch everything on defense and kind of be super versatile on offense. But ultimately, that plan failed. We really couldn't recover from it. And a big reason I think this season didn't go as planned is because our coaching staff, we kind of gave the keys to two, more so one, we kind of gave the keys to Sky Clark. We gave a five-star point guard, sounds good in theory, but giving the keys to like a relatively unknown recruit is coming off a torn ACL. We made a lot of promises to him that we wouldn't transfer these other point guards so he could kind of be the main facilitator of this offense. And obviously that didn't work out. Sky Clark, um, I feel like the, the big thing in the transfer portal is when these guys face it, not all these guys, very few, when they face adversity, they kind of become intimidated by it and transfer. And this was Sky Clark, he transferred four times in high school. So I feel like in hindsight, we probably should have seen this coming. As soon as we faced adversity for Illinois, like as soon as we had that tough loss at Northwestern, he transferred a day or two later. I know disrespect to Sky Clark. I still think he's a really talented player and he could have success at Louisville, but he just was not the answer to lead this team. And then after that, like Jay Neps, who's transferring now, I could see him at Georgetown, um, but we'll see where he goes. But Jay Neps is the next next guy up. And it's a really high pressure situation to ask for another freshman guard who didn't, I'm sure the coach staff didn't even give him high expectations of a big role this year. I think he did as good of a job as he could have been. But with the concussion issues in March um, and just ultimately being put into too big of a role too quickly, and he did a good job with it, but he wasn't the answer either. So not really having a consistent point guard, not really having a consistent facilitator and guard play uh, definitely hurt. I think a lot of times, uh, Terrence Shannon Jr. was great. He's a little inconsistent, but a lot of times, like the halftime adjustment would just kind of be like, just give the ball to Terrence Shannon Jr. Let him be the hero. And sometimes it would work, but that's not a consistent formula for success, especially in March. Um, I, other thing was this season was kind of the opposite of what I expected. Like I, I thought with so many new pieces, a lot of patchwork, a lot of guys from the transfer portal, a lot of big, big time recruits, but these were guys that never really played together before. And the way I expected the season to go, I expected to kind of get off to a slow start, um, has some growing pains, but ultimately gel into a team that becomes really dangerous in March and hopefully go on a run. Obviously, that didn't happen, sadly. But the season kind of went the opposite of what I expected. Like, I think this team actually looked their best during non-conference play. Like, our two – probably our two biggest wins in both comeback efforts um, was neutral court victories against – uh, UCLA and Vegas and uh, Texas and Madison Square Garden. Like for a while, those two wins kind of carried us on our resume, kind of staying in the tournament conversation and probably got us as a nine seed as opposed to being like an 11 or a 12 seed. Um, 
But even after those two games, I think what was really frustrating was that this team had such a high potential and they showed flashes of being a, a an elite team. And but the thing that goes with that is that we always played to the level of our competition, good or bad. Like um, this is a team that obviously beat UCLA and beat Texas, but at the end of the year, we also lost to Ohio State um, when they were on a big losing streak, um, and we lost to Penn State right before the tournament. We can never beat Penn State for some reason. We 0-3 against them. Um, they were good. Yeah they, were, yeah, they were good. They were a fun team. Um, Jim Pick was really good. Marcus Shrewsbury is a great coach. Obviously, he's not there now. He's going to Notre Dame. Um, but they had a lot of, like, three-point shooting and um, and firepower in the starting lineup. Um, but yeah, I think it was just, there were too many unknowns going into the season, too many variables that just didn't line up. Um, and yeah, going forward, I just think that, that, um, we need guys that are going to stay with the program longer guys that will kind of gel together. Like, I think, um, I think like a lot of reasons, there's a lot of reasons why Illinois fans love Trent Frazier and DeMonte Williams so much, but those are the only two guys that have played full four or five years, five-year careers under Brad Underwood. Like, uh, the only play, no, there hasn't been a player yet, actually, that has committed to Brad Underwood and played for him for four, for at least four years. Uh, Coleman could be the first if he comes back. Um, it could have been Brandon Lee, but now he's transferring. Um, but yeah, Trent Frazier and DeMonte were the only guys who played their full careers at Illinois. And what made us so good was that we finally did have a culture. We did have a team identity that it was very tough. They're very uh, mentally tough hustle guys, but we still had the talent with Io, Kofi, and those guys are talented too. And those guys, uh, I wrote more about Trent Frazier. I'm a huge Trent Frazier guy, as any Illinois fan is, but like they fit the persona of just being a mentally and physically tough players that were like great leaders, uh, great group guys. And Brandon went all about the everyday guys. That's his mantra. And those are guys, those guys are the greatest example of being everyday guys because brad's a very tough coach um but those type of players reward brad and brad rewards those type of players that are very tough um and speaking of brad underwood ever since the lyle chicago loss i've kind of treated him as a scapegoat i'm not gonna lie like he kind of reminds me for marquette fans he reminds me of like a much 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 better version or that was a little harsh but a much a better version of steve ojahowski uh, but I still see a lot of potential for Underwood. I think it all comes down to he's a great recruiter. He develops good relationships with his players, but he doesn't really make in-game adjustments, which is a huge problem when it really matters in March. Um, at half After halftime, you kind of see like a lot of the same things happening. I think he's done a better job of it recently, but the past two years, that's really what I've kind of been harping on. Like I think he's limited the ceiling a little bit by not making in-game adjustments as a coach. Um, I think what kind of gave me more hope of this is at, at home versus Northwestern, uh, when Boo Booey was dropping a career high on us, like a lot of players were last year, um, he put Sincere Harris on him in the second half and then that kind of ignited a comeback. So those type of games give me hope, but, um, ultimately like this was a team that that could have been special, did look special at times. Um, and ultimately like most of the losses were, or self-inflicting. Like I felt like Illinois was its own worst enemy at times or most times, like we had the talent to compete with anyone, but we just were very chaotic, very careless with the ball at time. Most games it felt like, it just kind of felt like, like you ever like go to the, like, like the rec center or have like an AU team that has like 
a lot of really talented pieces, but you keep losing and you don't know why. It's because you don't really play as well um, as a collective unit. And then um, kind of segmenting or transitioning off that next year, who knows how next year is going to go. At this point, there's a lot of work that I do in the off season. Uh, but I think the number one priority is we, and it's not really in our control, is we absolutely need to keep Coleman Hawkins. I cannot emphasize it enough. Um, adding Terrence Shannon Jr. would also be a, a huge bonus. That helps us a lot. But I think Illinois fans don't really appreciate Coleman as much as we should because he makes a lot of boneheaded mistakes and is kind of mistake-prone at times. But, like, he's one of the most unique players in college basketball. He could guard one through five on defense. He can play one through five on offense. He's a guy that uh, really is indispensable, in my opinion. And we needed to get him back. And... Like I said, there's a lot of work through this offseason. We could be hearing a similar story next year with this Illinois team with all the patchwork. So I'd say just get as much star power as you can in the portal, honestly, and then just develop the guys that you already have and try to get them to stay together. Um, I wrote down, basically, I tried to simplify it because this team is, this program is so chaotic right now. The state of the team is so chaotic. We've already had RJ Melendez transfer, Jay Nebs transfer, Brandon Lee transfer, and even Connor Servant transfer or just like a relatively unknown guy for even Illinois fans, I feel like. Um, but there will be a lot of talent on the team next year. We bring in the number 24 recruiting class. And in the portal, I I have a um I ranked six tiers. This will be the fun part. Wow. If you haven't listened, if you haven't listened to this part yet, if you have got bored of me talking, Illinois fans have uh just rambling on about what you already know, this is what I want you to listen to. I have six tiers of guys that Illinois should go for in the portal. I think in the portal, the first priority is obviously establishing or obviously getting a, a veteran point guard of the transfer portal. We don't want to make the same mistake we made last year with trusting inexperienced guards. We need a veteran point guard. And then alongside of that, we also need uh, more shooting in the portal and we need more size. But all right, here's, here's my list. The number one guy that I want Illinois to target is uh, Ace Baldwin um, from VCU. Like uh, this was a, yeah, he, VC was good last year. They were 27 and eight. Uh, they earned a 12 seed in the tournament um, and it all revolved around Ace Baldwin. He led the team in scoring. He led the team in assists. Um, and he's a great defensive player. He's a great on-ball defender. Like him and, him and Sincere Harris on the court together gives me goosebumps, man. Like they would, they would have provided so much energy, so much pressure on the defensive end. It'd be so much fun to watch. Um, Ace Baldwin last year, not only was he the Atlantic 10 defensive player in the year, which doesn't really happen very much with guards, usually the big men uh, winning that award. He was the defensive player of the year in the Atlantic 10, and he was the Atlantic 10 player of the year. So bringing this guy in, I think, would be a, a huge addition. Um, he kind of goes, he's definitely a top 10 transfer in the transfer portal, but we offered him, I think we could get him, and there's other guys in the transfer portal that get more exposure than ace baldwin ace baldwin does so maybe we can steal him he's my number one guy no doubt about it um i'd really like to get ace baldwin and go on and on about him but that's the basic gist of it um next one of my tier one is jameson battle from minnesota um i think illinois fans are pretty familiar with him played against him for a few years now we couldn't get dawson garcia last year in the portal um another guy's or not like yeah no, two years ago, excuse me. Um, but I think Jameson Battle would be an even better version of Dawson Garcia. I heard, he's, size. I heard he's trending in Indiana. I heard Indiana's the leader of the clubhouse right now. I did not hear that. It's not good to hear, though. I, 
oh, I would not want to play against them again. Um, probably a better Big Ten team. Um, yeah, so I guess maybe throw it out the window, but I like Jamison better a lot. He's adds good size, he's a great score. Um, yeah, he would be a great addition, but it sounds like according to you, Indiana's the favorite for that one. Uh, tier two, I'll uh, start going through his list a little faster now. Tier two, LJ Cryer from Baylor. I'm very surprised he transferred, by the way. Um, Brandon Murray from Georgetown. We recruited him the past two years, and then he committed to LSU, and then he committed to Georgetown, or transferred to Georgetown last year. So maybe we finally get him in the third try. I think he'd be a great fit. Uh, I might mispronounce this name, but Andrew uh, Rodhi from St. Thomas. He's a 6'6 guard, uh, provides a lot of scoring. Um, I think he'd be a great fit for our team and our program. Uh, he's a shooter we need for sure. Um, tier three, I mentioned him a couple of times the second episode. Uh, Graham E.K. from Wyoming. Um, we definitely need some more big man depth. Um, I love Dane Danger, but we could definitely use someone like Graham E.K. And maybe even put Dane Danger at the four. I think that'd be an interesting experiment. Who knows if that would work, but I'd love to see Graham E.K. join Illinois regardless. Uh, Jalen Cook from Tulane rounds out the tier three tier. Um, he's a great scorer. Um, that's really the biggest thing. I could go on and on about him too, but his scoring is what we need the most. Uh, tier four, uh, Khalil Ware from Oregon. It's kind of a long shot, but a future NBA lottery pick, I think, potentially. Uh, that'd be a great addition. Um, Micah, I might pronounce his last name too, Han Logton from Marshall. I think he'd be a great fit. He's a big man um, that would really help us on both ends of the floor. Uh, Dalton Necht from Northern Colorado kind of fits that that bigger athletic wing that's also a great scorer and shooter that we would need. Um, and lastly, in Tier 4, uh, I don't know much about him, but I know we're really big on him. Uh, Justin Harmon from Utah Valley. Uh, he's from – he really, lives really close to Champaign, Illinois, so he'd be like the hometown kid. So it's definitely a logical fit there, at least from a logistical standpoint. Uh, the next tier – uh, it's not a number, it's a name. It's the Andre Curbelo tier. Uh, very on, very unpopular opinion, but I would actually love to have Andre Curbelo back. He doesn't really fit the team's like, needs. Is that in the realm of possibilities, or is this just like you would like to see him back? Um, apparently, he's made calls back to the program, but who, I don't even know if that's true. And I haven't heard anything like on Twitter or online about us targeting him, so who knows? I think he would like to come back, but I don't know if Brad Underwood wants him back. Um, so I'd say it's possible, but very unlikely to answer that. Um, but I guess I wouldn't want to have him back in such as, as big of a role. I think he would um, do well as kind of a spark plug off the bench, like assuming that we'd got other guys in the transfer portal. Um, I mean, that's kind of how he was freshman year. Like he was the, he's our sixth man. I want to say he was the sixth man of the year in the Big Ten, but I don't know if that's correct. Um, but regardless, he played that six-man role really well. He provided a lot of energy off the bench, and that's when he had the best year of his college career by far when he was coming off the bench. So maybe he could be the spark plug off the bench that we need and kind of get his career going back in, back in the right direction again. And then Tier 5, this is kind of like the bad fit but really talented players tier. Uh, Damian Dunn from Temple, he's actually a decent fit, but um, Max Aismas from Oral Roberts and Hunter Dickinson from Michigan – um, those guys, I don't think we'll get either of them, but it'd be nice to go for them. Um, even then, I don't even know. I don't think they're a good fit. I think they were just worth mentioning. I couldn't have a transfer list and not mention those guys who were like 
two of the best guys in the portal. Uh, Hunter Dickinson's probably number one. Like you said, he might be the best transfer ever. Um, so, yeah, that rounds out my tier. Tier one, Ace Baldwin, Jameson Battle. Tier two, LJ Cryer, Brandon Murray, Andrew Roddy. Tier three, Gamike, Dylan Cook. Tier four, Cleo Ware, Micah Hanlogton. Sorry for the mispronunciation. Dalton Necht, uh, Justin Harmon, Andre Cabello tier, Andre Cabello. Tier five, Damian Dunn, Max Aismas, Hunter Dickinson. And then... Dylan uh, Cook's going to LSU, they say. Really? Is that yeah, a I actually knew that. He's from I think he's from Baton Rouge. Oh, oh that makes sense then. He's transferring yeah, with uh uh Jordan Wright from Vandy. He just came into Dallas too. I think oh, they're friends. Yeah, I got some questions about Vandy once we get to that. Um it's a mess. Yeah. yeah. I didn't know he was going to LSU. That makes sense if he's from that area though. They have a good program. Um, but anyway, all season priorities. I have three of them. Number one, absolutely must keep Coleman. Um, and keeping Terrence Town Jr. would be a huge bonus, but I'm not really expecting uh, TSJ to come back. Uh, if we can reach both, if we can keep both of those guys, we can reach our ceiling on the second weekend team in March. Definitely have the talent to do so, and hopefully we can put it all together this year. Um, so offseason priority number two uh, would be adding a veteran point guard in the transfer portal. Um, and then 2A would be adding shooting in the transfer portal, 2B adding size. And then number three, uh, I really want to see us develop our freshman class. It's the number 24 freshman recruiting class in the country. We kind of need to build the foundation of a future where we finally have a class that sticks together and kind of starts a new era in Brad's and Brad Underwood's tenure. Because, I mean, we're seeing, I'm sure you've seen it, like we're losing too many guys year in and year out now, and we kind of need the team to gel and have more continuity, kind of a big thing we talk about with these best teams. Like a lot of these guys, the reason the teams go far is because they've played together so often before. They've played together for years and they know each other's tendencies. They know how to play with each other. And when you're having these guys leave, you're having these guys come in and come out, it's kind of hard to establish a consistent identity and establish a consistent culture. I think I know it's established the culture, but establish the identity and kind of playing style. It's easier to do that when you've had guys who played together before. So I think Ty Rogers and Sincere Harris are both gonna have huge programs for the year, huge years for the pro for the program next year. Sorry, jumping my words a little bit there, but they're both dogs. They got a lot of room for improvement. They're hard-nosed guys who displayed talent. I think they're gonna keep showing a lot of growth. They're very tough-minded players. And long story short, this Illinois team, uh, I think the goal. This year is to reach the Sweet 16. We haven't gotten over the hump of getting the second weekend yet the past couple of years. Um, like the ceiling, the ceiling man's in it's an outer space and the floor is below, below sea level. Like who knows where this team goes? I think um, if we had this podcast last year, I'd probably be criticizing Underwood a lot more, but I really don't think all these guys leaving this year is his fault. Like he did all he could for RJ to stay. Um, he's just a really tough coach. Like he's really going to get on you. He's really going to try to get the most out of you. And a lot of players can't handle that. Um, it's kind of like he's kind of like a drill sergeant or an army guy. He's just like he's just gotta get players that can stay with the program. Cause I think it can develop players too. I mean, I won't disagree with you if you say some players don't develop as well as they should, but I think if he gets guys that can fit with the program and stay with the team, um, and establish more continuity, Illinois has the talent to be good. We just need we just need more of like team chemistry and continuity to kind of put it all together and finally make the runs in March that every Illinois fan has wanted. Because we, we've done well in the Big Ten. We've won 
uh, Big Ten Conference Tournament in 2021, then shared the regular season title last year with Wisconsin. But the one thing that everyone, every Illinois fan has wanted recently is a deep run of March. And I think that'll happen once we establish more continuity. And it all revolves around getting players that fit Brad Underwood's persona being mentally and physically tough. Yeah, you covered it all right there. But I think my main takeaway from what you said, I mean, I feel like really the only like sustained success Illinois, I mean, obviously, since Underwood's got there, it's been crazy improvement from whatever the past 10 years before that. But I think in the Underwood era, really the only sustained success was your that team with Frazier, Io, Kofi, uh, DeMonte Williams. And I think like you're right, it's like, they've had so many guys coming in and out these last few years, it's really hard to just, like, piece it together. And I think this last team, honestly, like, the expectations were super high just because, like, the talent was certainly there. But it is hard. I mean, obviously, you've seen it work. There's been a lot of transfers, portal success stories. Like, Kansas State this year was pretty much all just guys they brought in. But, like... It definitely, especially with Underwood's coaching style, I feel like it's a little more polarizing and intense, which maybe it's not as easy to just kind of jump in and have this, like, picture-perfect team. So I feel like there definitely has to be something where, like, Underwood gets guys that know and understand his expectations and are willing to put the sacrifices to succeed in his program. And obviously, I think that's going to take guys staying there for more than one or two years, whatever it is, you know. Yeah, I think, yeah, that's really what it all comes down to. Like, this team could be good next year with all the talent it has, but at the same time, like, it's really a coin flip. Like, no one really knows. Even even the Illinois fans have no idea right now how the team's going to be next year. Obviously, a lot of work to do in the offseason, but like you said, it's all about just getting guys to stay with the program and kind of replicate the – the IO era, IO is one of a kind, man. I, every Illinois fan could go on, on, on and on about him, how much we love him. But I kind of replicate the era with IO, uh, Trent, uh, Georgie Benespili. Uh, he was there for a few years before going pro. Um, yeah, a lot of, of non-Illinois fans might know who that is, but I think he's a good example of an everyday guy that fits Brad's um, program. And uh, Kofi, DeMonte, all those guys. Um, just, just get a group that can stay together get a, a tough, a hard-nosed team. It's like a tough persona because that's who Brett is. A lot of times the team the team reflects their coach. Um, like I think Marquette's a good example of that. Like we really reflect Shaka Smart and what he's all about. And I think if Illinois can do the same thing and have a team that reflects Coach Underwood, then, then the ceiling is is very high in the future. But it's a big if. It's got to get players to stay. Yeah. I think you're right about that. I mean, I just think – they need the buy-in and the long-term buy-in. It's, it's hard to do now and harder to do now on the NAL and transport era, but it's yeah, very attainable. Harder than ever, but I feel like that's the, always the consistency you see from the top teams year in, year out. But Yeah, and that's exactly what Shock has done with Marquette. He's got everyone to buy in. Everyone plays the role, and that's just what I want Illinois to do the same thing. Sorry, what do you want to say? Oh, I was just going to say, I can talk a little about Vandy here if you're ready to move on from Illinois. Let's get into it. Let's hear about the Commodores. we got a lot of guys in transfer portal recently. Like, I remember that text me yesterday. They've lost six guys. So, yeah. I want to hear, hear all about it. Honestly, like, I don't have a crazy amount to say. There's really not a lot to be said. 
this past season very I don't even know if I would say up and down. It was literally just like down and then up. There was no up. There was not a lot of changing in that. It, it was kind of like a disaster non-conference schedule. People were like, these guys suck. And the the cap was then lost to Alabama. Albeit Alabama obviously finished as the number one team in the country. But they lost by like 60 almost. Like I think it was... I forget the exact number, but it was in the 50s, and it was, like... 100-something to 50-something. Yeah, I mean, it was, like, the type of game, like, they just looked like they were, like, a middle school team versus an NBA team. Like, it was, like, crazy. And then all of a sudden, after that game, something clicks. I don't know what happened. I don't know what went on in that locker room, but somehow they used that game to put it all together, and then they won, I think... 10 of their last 12, I believe, with the lone loss coming to the last place SEC team, LSU. And all along the way, they beat Kentucky twice, Auburn, Arkansas, Tennessee, like legit SEC teams that like were in the title conversation and teams that made runs in March. Like it was, it was crazy. But ultimately, they, whatever, they didn't make the tournament. They lost to AM in the SEC semifinals evidently weren't that close to making the tournament anyways because they weren't even the first four out, but whatever. They do okay in the NIT. Not that the NIT really matters, but they won a couple games and lost to UAB. It is what it is. Their best player was also out for the NIT, uh, Liam Robbins. He was out for the SEC tournament too, but he graduates, who was pretty good. Pretty much the only consistent throughout their season. I mean, they had a, a lot of solid players, but Liam Robbins was the only like consistent piece every game. Uh, he won the SEC Defensive Player of the Year, but whatever. He's graduating. Um, and then just kind of the way they ended the year, I mean, as an outsider, I was kind of optimistic that they kind of had momentum for the first time in years going into an offseason. Obviously, you lose Robbins, that hurts, but their other center, uh, Quentin Miller Brown, said he was coming back. Today, he announces he's transferring. Uh, Jordan Wright, who has kind of been the staple on the team for the, he's been there four years, transferring, like I said earlier, committing to LSU. And then, who else is transferring? And I believe it was three players that they had. Five guys in their freshman classes upcoming year, and three of them are in the portal right now. I mean, it's just like a disaster so far. Uh, Tyron Lawrence, who was probably their one or one of the two best guards on the team, entered the draft, but he's maintaining his eligibility. I'm expecting him to come back because he's not projected to get picked, but you never know. Some guys just don't want to do college anymore, they'd rather just test the waters as a pro. So I'll just go with that. I think he'll come back. So it's really him, uh, Ezra Mignon, who was huge for them down the stretch, and a couple of the guys that were in their freshman class last year that are still there. Hopefully, maybe they enter the transfer portal too. I don't even know at this point. And then they're having an okay transfer or freshman class coming in. But Vandy's not really the type of program where you you don't really want to play people as freshmen. So it's will be interesting how this goes because 
they had momentum. And it seemed like things were going the right direction. Stack won SEC Coach of the Year. And I don't know. I'm a believer at this point because I was ready to call for his job after they lost to Alabama. I think just about every Vanderbilt fan was. But he turned it around, so I'm giving him the benefit of the doubt that he's the guy for the job. And we'll see what they do. I mean, I don't know who they're – Vanderbilt, I mean, I work for football, so I have a little lens into how Vanderbilt recruiting works. And it's a very niche recruiting spot because you do have to meet that academic standard and you do have to take kids that are willing to work in school as well as on the basketball court. And it's a very demanding, like, spot to go, obviously. And you're not going to get a ton of NBA players that are wanting to come there because they are focused on making the NBA. They don't want to focus on their academics. So it's definitely an interesting spot. but. There definitely is going to be transfers coming in. I mean, it's just reality. Transfers come out, go out. You're going to have transfers come in. So, I mean, I think it'll be interesting to see what they do. Definitely, it's going to be an active offseason. But I think with the way they ended the season, there's some hope. And I don't know if I'd call it expectation, but optimism that an NCAA tournament run, not run, just appearance really, could be in store for next year. Yeah, um, yeah, I think you covered it really well. I think they just dug themselves in too deep, too deep of a hole early in the year. Like you said, the non-conference play was just disastrous, and really, they almost did all they could to kind of make up for that. But that LSU loss just ultimately cost them. Like if they didn't lose to last place to see team LSU and towards the end of the towards the end of the season, I think they're probably in the tournament, in my opinion, even if they were weren't in that first four out. Um. I was going to ask you about Jerry Stackhouse, but you kind of covered that. It definitely seemed like he was on the hot seat going into last year. after the oh, yeah. game. I, I think he definitely was going into the season on the hot seat. And then the way he started it, I think people were – most people, I mean, Vandy Twitter and fans and my friends from school, people were ready to fire him midseason. Like, no one even wanted to give him a shot for the rest of the year. Yeah, that's what I would, that's what I would expect if after that, after that type of loss to Alabama, like you said, to – looked like a middle school team versus an NBA team. Yeah, I mean, uh, it's like, it looks like the type of loss where you just – it looks like he lost the locker room and, like, they just weren't – they didn't want to play for him, you know? Yeah, but he found a way to win it back. It's very, very resilient uh, – very resilient team, I guess. I don't know how you win the locker room back after that type of game. Yeah, I mean, honestly, I think the truth probably is you probably never lost it. I think Alabama just kicked their ass. It's just <laughs> – which is like, I yeah. mean, I, I not, I mean, Alabama obviously was an incredible team, and we were probably an average team at best. But like, I think it was Alabama's A game versus our probably after D game. So, I guess that's how you end up losing by fifty points. Um, yeah. So I guess the main question I have, I kind of when you're talking about the the niche, the niche recruiting thing to Alabama or not Alabama to. Vanderbilt, I thought of that Carl Jones quote, like, we ain't coming to play, we ain't coming to play football, or we ain't coming to play school, we came here to play football, uh, so I thought that was a good connection, like, that, um, a little bit of a random time to bring that quote up, but anyways, um, you kind of asked me this question earlier about Marquette, um, saying, like, what's the pitch, um, and everything's pretty established, but here, like, a lot of things aren't established, and there's a lot of different directions that Jerry Stackhouse can take with his program, and I guess I really don't know 
what his pitch was, maybe what his pitch is, maybe part of it is a great education and a great degree, but what is your pitch to like a big time recruit or a big time transfer or just really anyone you want to come to Vanderbilt? What's your pitch to get them to this basketball team? Yeah, I mean, I feel like the pitch is, I mean, I know the pitch, the basic pitch that we give for football. And like, I feel like the basic pitch is you come to Vanderbilt. I mean, you come to Vanderbilt, you get a phenomenal education. You're playing at the SEC level, which, I mean, the SEC isn't as good for basketball as it is for football, but you're still playing at one of the highest levels in all of college. And then you're in the biggest market in the SEC, playing in Nashville, living in Nashville. And obviously, I mean, that's not a lot of on-the-court pitch, but that's just the general Vanderbilt, like why you would want to come to Vanderbilt as a student athlete. And I think that is a great pitch, in my opinion. I mean, I feel like it provides a lot of the resources that sets you up for short-term success, whether that's like becoming a going pro or just gives you a good basis for a long-term background to have success not in your sport. But I think, honestly, I think if you're if you're stacking your recruiting, specifically in the portal too, I mean, I think you're just saying like, look at what we did with just all the chaos and everything that happened at the end of last year and just saying like, if we can get some sort of continuity, like just kind of get the pieces that he needs. And like, I think he's developed, he's done a very good job developing players. I mean, you look at, Scotty Pippen Jr. really wasn't supposed to be. I mean, he really wasn't supposed to be much coming into Vanderbilt. There's a reason Scotty Pippen Jr.'s kid um kind of went into went to Vanderbilt. I mean, if you're Scotty Pippen, you have, I mean, he went to Sierra Canyon, whatever. He had all the assets, not assets, but like all the publicity in the world, kind of. And he ends up at yeah, Vanderbilt. So I think honestly, like his developing skills have been pretty impressive. And then Liam Robbins has really emerged into a good player. I mean, I don't think he'll be a pro player, but in Jordan Wright came into his own and Ezra Manuel. And I mean, he's been able to develop guys. I think that's clear. So I think that's sort of your pitch, obviously to go along with just the general, why come to Van Rill pitch, just point to these guys he's developed and say, he could do the same. And, but yeah, like I said, Vanderbilt's not really a school. It's like has the same like I guess just like resources to just like fish out of the transfer portal. But I think they're gonna have to. And I think obviously with basketball, it's lesser, lesser than football, just because it's less guys. So it's like you need guys, you need guys. So like we'll see. I think it'll be very interesting to see how they approach it. And honestly, I couldn't tell you exactly their plan, but. We'll see. Also, it's also a situation where I know the transfer portal seems so daunting, but like people may end up coming back. It's not like these are top guys entering the portal. Like it's, I'm not sure it's guaranteed. They, I think they have six players in the portal. I don't think it's, I would expect just on like a numbers basis, at least two or three of them end up back in Vanderbilt just because not everyone's going to be able to find a new home that's better. Yeah. I mean, the grass isn't always greener. Um, yeah, you make a really good pitch there. Provide a lot of really good points about not just the education perspective, but also being in the SEC, playing in a high-level program, like playing against high-level talent, and getting the exposure. 
Um, I think one thing last year that I kind of realized when you were explaining about the player development of these guys, I, I was honestly really surprised that Vanderbilt became a lot better without Scottie Pippen Jr. Because I felt like they relied on him a lot uh, two years ago. Um, and I think it's a testament to Jerry Stackhouse being able to find a way to make it work even without your go-to guy. Um, so I think that's another example of him being able to win over the locker room and kind of find a way to win any way possible. Like I know we um, we kind of saw Sky Pippen Jr. when we were really young, like um, when we were like in middle school. Yeah, enjoy um, the game legend. Yeah, exactly. Enjoy the game riding stars, baby. Um, he was, I remember, I remember thinking he was good, but I didn't think he was this good back then. Granted, that was seven, eight years ago. Um, and he's really just taken, um, he's really taken time to develop. And it seems like Vanderbilt was a good fit for him. And now he's look at him. He's on, he's on the Lakers. So I think oh. that's a good example. <laughs> South Bay Lakers. It's not a two-way. It's a two-way. Yeah. Yeah. He's, he's got both. Um, so I think that's a a good example of a player to pitch um, someone who came in with a lot of hype and expectation. Um, and he was able to deliver on that, that promise and potential, even with all the circumstances around him. I know like his, the parent situation with like Larsa Pippen was like, I'm sure that wasn't easy for him to deal with off the court, um, but he was able to make it work at Vanderbilt and be surrounded in a good program and have a good college career and ultimately uh, be in the NBA right now. So that's what it's all about, at least for the big time players. Uh, yeah. Everyone goes to each school. I mean, I think the only other one thing I'll add is just like, I mean, I think, I think the players genuinely like playing for him. I think he's a player's coach and I don't know this for sure. And I'm not in the locker room, not seeing how it goes down, but I do think they like playing for stack. And I think, I think obviously just with the way this season went, like clearly they were willing to fight for him when, like, they easily could have just been, like, this guy sucks, like, we're having a horrible season, like, whatever. It's a lot, like, they easily, I think it says a lot about him that the team didn't just throw in the towel after they lost that badly and already had lost, like, many bad games at that point, you know? Uh, yeah. I think we covered it all with our teams, Marquette, Gonzaga, Illinois, and Vanderbilt kind of your general thoughts um what are some opinions that you have on the transfer portal and nil and sort of this new era of college basketball the modern era yeah i mean we kind of talked about this earlier when we were talking about our teams i mean i feel like there's no way to talk about college basketball now and not bring it up when you're just talking about how teams are constructed and all that but mm -hmm. i think ultimately it's good for the game i mean obviously it's going to take some fine tuning to get it perfect in and it won't it's not I take that back. It's never gonna be perfect. But it'll take some fine tuning for it to get to like its best possible form. But I think ultimately it's gonna bring more parity to the game. I mean it, obviously you're getting players that are transferring to big programs, but you get the guys that go to the big program to the small programs. Honestly, my one negative about all this is I think with NIL. Although I think it's great that the players make money because like the schools make so much money and then CAA makes so much money that like there's no reason the players shouldn't be able to profit off their own. But I think with that being said, the schools I don't think should be able to, I guess, 
indirectly, but essentially directly pay players. I mean, I was listening to a, a podcast with Nick Saban, who was talking about it for Alabama football. And like all these schools pretty much now have these like collective funds where it's essentially just alumni from the schools that are putting funds of money together or that they can just him and take that money and pay players to come to their program, which to me, yeah. it just like, then you're just paying players to come. And I think that kind of ruins the balance because like, obviously bigger schools and bigger brands are going to have much more resources to that sort of thing when it comes to alumni involvement in that sort of thing. So I think you got to find a way where players can still get paid. But I think in my mind, the NIL is the most, like, it has the biggest place for the game when it's, like, uh, just, like, literally, like, w- what it is, like, profits off your name, like, doing ads, doing commercials, jersey sales, like, autographs, all that sort of thing, to me, Obviously, I think players deserve that money, but I think there needs to be some more regulation on the schools themselves, essentially just paying players. Yeah, I think you I think you hit the nail on the head there. You put it perfectly. I think, yeah, I think Jay, Jay I'm talking about the same kind of thing that Nick Saban was talking about, saying that, like, a lot of these schools, they aren't, like, earning the players. They're just paying them to get there which technically it's fair game. It's part of what NIL is, but um, yeah, the collective funds, I feel like is almost like a cheat code for the bigger schools. Not that we're releasing it so far. Like we talked about earlier, how NIL does create a lot of parity and it's ultimately a good thing for everyone in college basketball. Um, but yeah, if there's more structure around it, like when you said that, I, I quickly like that challenged my own thought there, but I quickly thought of the idea of every player getting the same salary, but it's not, it's not how it works. No, no it's not, it would it's not, never work. Well, one of the other things that Saban said when I was listening to his was he was like, if it, it could get to the point where players are literally just getting a salary, like it's going to like be like professional sports, like salary cap system, which would just yeah. be like, like, honestly, like it sounds crazy, but to me, that's more reasonable and more regulated than the schools just like coming up with random numbers where their alumni are paying the players. Like it would make more sense for there to actually be like more of a system in place for the like the actual like money that's beyond like I guess like marketing and that sort of thing. Because obviously it's like professional athletes too. Like you sign your contract that's with your team with the league, but then whatever you make on endorsements is on the side. Yeah. Um, yeah, so that's a good way to put it. I take back what I said. I immediately take back what I said earlier about the same salary. I was not be very smart. Same side, I guess. Makes sense. Yeah, not at all. Um, but some things, um, I guess, trying to give a similar perspective, but different, uh, or try. I have the same opinion, but different perspective. Like, I think it's a great thing for college basketball nil, and I think people really blow like the negatives of nil and the transport out of proportion. Out of proportion, like, I think this the sport is adapting and. The best teams are going to find a way to to win, whether it's the modern way of getting transfers, getting people through the NAL, or just doing it their way, however they want to do it. Like like we talked about earlier, like having like player continuity and getting players to buy in is probably a lot more of a, a reliable way to win than getting five transfers, five big time recruits. You don't know how that's always going to work out. Um, so teams are always going to find a way to win. I think it's worth mentioning that 
uh, Dan Hurley. I feel like we talked about him a lot in the show, but he said <laughs> he like, did just win the national championship. <laughs> yeah, good point. Uh, he said like nobody at UConn is at on the UConn team because of NIL, and I don't think they had a lot of transfers either. I think all those guys were most of those guys were UConn recruits. Um, and then the other team, the championship, uh, San Diego State, uh, their head coach Brian Dutcher said how a little bit of a longer statement here. He said. You don't need to have millions of dollars in NAL. You don't have to get every player in the portal in order to be successful. You just have to have kids who are about the right things that want to win beyond anything else. And obviously there's a little bit of code talk there and a little bit being politically politically correct, but I agree with his general statement there. Just like you could win in your way and getting winning players and override the talent of an NIL team or a um, transfer portal team. Like I think like Miami is probably the best example of using the NIL to their advantage. Like they have that billionaire John Ruiz to kind of pay the players, I guess, to get yeah, them there. I mean, they essentially bought their team. Yeah, but the rest of the Final Four is just all good, all good programs, good coaching, good teams, and. But like that I sounds said, a. I mean, not to interrupt you, but that sounds a bash Miami because I think, like obviously, like it's a little more unethical to do it that way, but like the rules aren't against it, so like there's no. There's no reason oh. to be like, oh, it's unfair that they did that. Yeah, I think, yeah, everything's fair game now. And not, it's they also have Jim Laranaga as a Hall of Fame coach. So like, it's not just about the NAL and transfer portal, but I think they're the best example of adapting to this new era and using all like the little, little I guess, big intricacies to your advantage. Um, but to kind of sum it, all, sum it all up, I think, like you said, I think the NIL is going to continue to be like a messy transition, but it's ultimately going to be a great thing for college basketball and everyone involved. Like it's going to create more disparity. It's going to create more parity in college basketball. I think it's great for the players and the programs. Like you can't tell me like, like D1 athletes are some of the busiest people in the world. Like they're basically working like a nine to five job with two shifts of overtime. Like the players like have every right to make money off their name, image, and likeness. It's not like the school's paying them. Like they're making money they're profiting off their own image from external sources. Like there's no way they can't be paid for that, in my opinion. Um, I also think a few more positives, the star players, at least more often now, they stay in school longer. More students are getting their degrees because of this. Because a lot of, at least, I think a good example from Illinois is um, like Kofi Coburn was making like more than a million dollars when everyone thought he would leave after his sophomore year. But a big, a big reason he stayed is because of how much money he was getting. Um, it helps female athletes for sure. Um, and then in the transfer portal, I do think a lot of players are too quick to panic, but at the same time, there's usually valid reasoning for a lot of these transfers. Like if the coach leaves, for example, like a lot of players want to go to, don't want to go to a different coach that didn't buy into their program into. But I think, like we said, the sport is adapting. I think it makes the sport entertaining. And I think it really will help all parties involved, the fans, players, programs, coaches, the NCAA, you name it. So I think I think it's a fun era, and I think it's fun to see the sport adapt. Yeah, no, I, I think it's definitely – it's, like, polarizing as it is because it's just so different than it has been and, like, probably some of the most change there's been, I guess, just in, like, a short period of time. I think it's, it's exciting to watch it all unfold. But to transition a little here – I think one of the reasons I think the transfer portal is just, I mean, it makes sense is because 
there's coaches are just allowed to leave whenever too. So there's no reason players shouldn't be allowed to leave either. So obviously pretty busy off season with coaching hires. Uh, I think no better place than to start with the Big East movement. Three major moves. Uh, Rick Pitino, the St. John's, finally leaves Iona, which I think it was a job he genuinely enjoyed, but you just know Rick Pitino wasn't going to stay there forever. He had one, one more job in him at a high major school. Yeah. I mean, he always talked about how he loved the, loved the school and he loved the program, but he didn't like the conference being a one-bid league, so makes sense. Yeah. And then Ed Cooley is now the villain, number one. Snake, leaves, leaves Providence for in-conference rival Georgetown. And then Providence brings in Kim English from George Mason to replace yeah, him. George Mason. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I guess I'll start with that. I just think, I think Ed Cooley, I don't know if this is a hot take or not, but I think Ed Cooley leaving Providence is actually a blessing in disguise for for Providence fans in that program. Like I think Kim English, you know, I, you know what I'll say. I think I think Kim English is going to do a better job than Ed Cooley did, which is like definitely won't be easy. I think Ed Cooley, he kind of like Providence is at rock bottom, and Ed and Ed Cooley brought them brought them back to like national relevancy, national prominence. I think he did a great job. Didn't have the most success in March, but he really did a great job rebuilding that program and putting them in a good position now for the next coach. Um, when he did leave, it looked like he put the program in shambles. Like it looked like everyone's going to leave, but I think already a good sign that Kim English is going to be a good coach is that he's retained all the talent that they already had, or not the recruits, but he's retained all the players that were on the team already. Um, like I think Bryce Hopkins and uh, Devin Carter are two of the most underrated players in the country. Uh, Bryce Hopkins just, destroyed Marquette at Providence last year, I remember. Um, so ever since that game, I've watched him, and he's, I think he doesn't get talked about enough by college basketball fans. And next year, he'll probably be more on the radar with Kim English coaching and hopefully Providence for their sake, um, being just as good as they were last year, if not better. Because they were a really good team until they kind of collapsed at the end. Like, they were ranked for a while. They were in the top half of the Big East. And then... Once Ed Cooley, uh, Georgetown ne- negotiations wrapped up, that's kind of when everything fell apart for them. Um, but yeah, I think Kim English is he's retained talent, uh, he's recruiting well, uh, especially getting some of those Jordan Mason guys to go over to Providence, and he's getting players to buy in, which is a key theme we've talked on this podcast. With crucial for any coach is get that level of buy in that you feel is with the best programs. And I think he's going to do that with this team with Providence. He's only thirty four years old. Um, and best case scenario, like dream scenario for Providence fans, like I can see Kim English coaching this team for decades. Like he's a very young coach, maybe even retiring at Providence. He's only 34 years old. And apparently like George Mason Twitter and like George Mason, like message boards, they were like extremely sad to lose this guy. Like it, it was like a funeral vibe, like seeing this guy go. So, um, I think Kim English is a great fit at Providence, um, and I have some thoughts about Ed Cooley too, but I'm sure you do also. So whatever you want to say about this situation, just go get right into it. Yeah, I mean, I think looking at the situation now, I feel like it's going to be a win-win for both of these programs. I feel like Kim English seems awesome. I mean, he seems like he's a player's coach already. Like the guys, that, like you said, he's returning pretty much all the players that were at Providence. Like, yeah, he had the video where he played the guy 
I don't know if it was real. I'm gonna go with it wasn't real. I love, I, I love that video that Jaden Pierre, like the guy in the transfer portal. Yeah, when he played the guy win one on one to take his name out of the portal. I assume it wasn't real, but it was a good story that they came up with, which makes me like him more. So yeah, I think he seems yeah. like yeah, I mean he just seems like he's doing a good job so far. And I think that he's keeping the program afloat, which is I feel like a lot of the times you see when these decent like high major programs like lose their coach fire their coach whatever it is like the whole team leaves like literally and you're starting from square one i think it's a good sign that he's able to bring a lot of the team with him and i think it's encouraging for the future and then for georgetown who's obviously just been miserable besides the one fluky biggies tournament win getting a guy like cooley who's been established and had some success not some success a lot of success the last whatever 10 years i don't know how long he's been in providence but a long time i think 2011 was his first year there so yeah so like a little more than 10 years but i think getting a guy like that will go a long way for them and it it should help them because i mean uconn obviously winning the title and just overall the big east success has kind of put the big east back on the map i mean i feel like I know you've been a Big East truther for a long time, but I think yeah, it's, everyone is. I think it's yeah. I mean, I think it definitely took a while to like kind of transition from that like Big East that everyone knew with Syracuse and Louisville and all those guys into kind of what the modern day Big East is. And I think Georgetown getting back to relevance could be a big part of continuing that. And then obviously Patino going to St. John's also could bring another team that historically has a lot of just like good success in history and bring them back to relevance as well. Yeah. Um, I remember we talked about, I think it'll be last episode now, if the Big East is the best conference this year, I think you could really go either way between Big 12 and the Big East. But that being said, the Big East is going to be a gauntlet next year. Like it's going to be elite. And um, next year, I think they're a pretty strong bet to be the favorite now. I'm not going to say they are because it's, Still super early, and a lot's going to happen this offseason. But um, right now, I'd say it's a pretty strong bet that they'll be the next conference, the best conference next year. But honestly, who knows? There's a lot that we'll have to see. And like we've talked about, it's all about the individual teams and more so than generalizing the conference themselves. Um, and uh, I forgot to mention it with Ed Cooley. Uh, I think I do think he's a good guy, too. Um, obviously, he handled this in probably the worst possible way that you could have. Um, huh, the there's, truth also, is there's like, not really any good way to handle it if he was, yeah. I mean, true. besides not taking the job, he wasn't gonna be a good guy no matter what. Yeah, that's a good way to put it, actually. Uh, there were rumors that like he had an affair with with some, like, it, there was rumors somewhere in the North Carolina thing a while ago, like, like he was cheating on his wife or something, and like that was a big reason why he left Providence. Um, so I guess there's a lot of there could have been some off the court stuff that we didn't know about. I feel like with any team, like you think you know what's going on, but there's so much that you don't know about every single team, even the ones that seem the most certain. Um, but yeah, like you said, it's a win-win. I think Ed Cooley will have a good platform at Pro- or at um, Georgetown. Providence, I think, will do even better too. Um, yeah, I think we could say more about it, but let's let's keep moving on. And, uh, let's talk about next. What do you think about? Uh, Tobin Anderson uh, making the transition from Fairleigh Dickinson to Iona, taking away 
Rick Pitino's last school. Yeah, I mean, there's not really a whole lot to say. I just wanted to talk about him because, I don't know. Yeah, it was awesome. He said there, he called a shot. He said they're going to beat Purdue, and he did. I don't know if he meant to call that shot on purpose because I think if he might have said I didn't want Purdue to see this, but it kind of sounded like he did. But regardless, it, no, he said he wanted looked, he wanted Purdue to see it. I that's what I thought, but when you like when you like listen to the video closely, he kind of like mumbles his words saying, "I." It sounds like he doesn't want them to hear it, but I don't know. I, I don't think it, he would say that. You know, there was a camera. Yeah, it's true. Yeah, um, yeah. I guess anyway, the small sample. Not like he about. was like telling his team a secret. Maybe if he was like whispering. <laughs> yeah, it was like tells the cameras to go away. Um, yeah, I guess like I said, there's not much to say. It's like a small sample size of on the national stage of what we've seen from him, but it's enough to think he'll be a good coach. And I don't think that Iona's like high pressure of a situation is it was. I for mean, that's Sheen. like. Yeah, I mean, I think Iona's a decent job. And, I mean, Iona's been, like, a obviously not a powerhouse, but they've been a decent mid-major for the last, I don't know, however many years. Like, I feel like that you, it's a small school that you hear about a lot. So I feel like yeah. it gives him a good opportunity to, if he succeeds here to then move into, like, a high-major role somewhere. Like, I think with Shaheen Holloway, the St. Peter's coach last year, I think it was Seton Hall is like a very high press situation, high pressure situation, especially in the Big East now. I do think he can make it work. Um, but I think this is a much easier transition for someone who's in a very similar situation. Yeah. I mean, um, obviously you wanna make the big move, like you wanna get to the, the top as fast as you can. But like maybe for more long term sustained success, it's probably easier to take smaller stepping stones. Yeah. And and the next coach we'll talk about. Um, I think he's a great coach, actually. Uh, Micah Shrewsbury, leaving from Penn State to Notre Dame. Uh, what do you think about that, Nate? This is a weird one for me because I, I think I agree. I think he's a phenomenal coach, and I think he did a great job at Penn State. But I think Penn State has a problem where they can't – you can't be in the Big Ten and then not be able to retain your coach if you ever want to be basketball relevant. Yeah, I mean, yeah, you can tread water in the short term, but like it's all about long term uh, sustainability and success. And like if you're losing your coach every few years, I know Pat Chambers was there for a while, but like he didn't really do too much there. Like I think might have had one or two wins in the tournament. He won the NIT in 2018, I remember, but like that's not that's um, not the sustainable, it's not the success so that you want. Yeah, that's, that's like. The reason I bring him up is because he's been there the longest from any recent Penn State coach. Um, and they got to keep, like, we talk about keeping players, like keeping a coach is even more important if they're, if they're a good one. And Michael Shrewsbury was a good coach, great coach in my opinion. And yeah, they need a long-term solution now. And then who they hired, the VCU guy, like Mike Rose? Or something? Yeah, they hired the VCU guy, which I think could be a good hire. I mean, I don't really know a whole lot about him, but VCU has been pretty good. I think they might get yeah. – I was – when you were doing your Marquette talk, I was looking into A's ball, and I think he might go to Penn State and follow his coach. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. Um, that was uh, the 24-7 crystal ball, so. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I love the crystal ball. Um, but, yeah, I think any program you need to develop an identity – 
and the culture, and that most heavily, heavily relies on the head coach. Um, so next, we're going to talk about some players. Um, I definitely have some strong opinions um, on this one, but I'll ask you first. Uh, what do you think of Caleb Love and what's next for him? Caleb Love, obviously, he's kind of like, I don't know what's the word describing, but he just he's kind of just what you call a, a chucker. Just loves to get yeah, shots it, up. I mean, I don't know how many yeah. shots he actually averaged, but whenever you watch him, you just feel like he's shooting the ball every time he touches it. But obviously, he is super talented. Like, he was great for them when they made that run last year in the tournament. Obviously, this year was not as consistent, which, I mean, he wasn't super consistent the full season, like I said, last year either. But obviously, I think the talent's there. And I think in the right situation, he could be a very good player. Um, should be interesting to see where he goes. I heard it was Mizzou, which is closest school to his like I don't know if the closest but closest like major school to his hometown of St. Louis but I've heard a number of Big Ten schools in the mix Indiana Michigan so it should be interesting I mean I think in the right situation he could be a very good player again yeah I agree um I think they covered some of the thoughts I had I think a good comparison to him would be Marcus Carr like they're both kind of inefficient players, but they're big time players who are going to shine in March when it matters most. And last year, uh, Marcus Carr transferred to Texas. Uh, he's leading there, and it worked out. Like they made a deep run. They went to the Elite Eight. Um, and yeah, I think Caleb Love's an unbelievable talent. He's the catalyst of the the 2022 run, like you mentioned. Uh, he's a five star crew in McDonald's All American. And he's he's an elite player, and he's going to remind everyone how good he is next year um, with the right fit. And I think the right fit will definitely be at Indiana or Mizzou, and he can't really go wrong either way with those two schools. Um, yeah, all right, next. I agree. Yeah, next, as we've talked about a few times already in this, on this podcast, but we got Hunter Dickinson. Um, I know we've talked about him a lot already, so I'll just ask, where do you think are the – the top two or three best fits for him, and then I'll tell you my top three. I think, honestly, like, he could probably go anywhere he wants, just as talented as he is. Uh, I mean, he's an interesting guy, it seems like. I don't know how well-liked he is, and I think he likes the attention. But he does like it. He's going to be a good player somewhere. I do think Gonzaga is a good fit, obviously, just because they're losing Drew Timmy. And they run obviously they ran their offense around the center last year. So like I, it would make a lot of sense to kind of obviously he's not the same player, but I think you could see an easy transition into an offense that's already been revolving around the center for two years now. Um where else would be interesting? Duke. Duke would be interesting. Yeah. Especially if they end up losing. Uh, I mean, I think Lively did end up declaring. And Filipowski hasn't decided yet, but I'm guessing he's also going to be gone. So they could use another big. And I think that'd be interesting. And if you really just wanted to fulfill the villain arc, that would be a, a great spot for him to choose. And yeah. I mean, also, if he just went anywhere in the Big Ten, he would also be considered a villain still. So um where else 
Honestly, those are... Georgetown, I think. That's like a villain team. Like Providence versus Georgetown to be the hero versus the villain. And Hunter Dickinson to be fit well with the, the villain arc at Georgetown, I think. It's also close to his hometown. So I know okay. they've been... Um, I can make sense. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think... Yeah, like kind of like you implied, like he really could go anywhere. Like he's good enough for any power conference school. He'll probably find a way to make the team better and and be a good fit. But the the top three that I had was number three, Georgetown. I think that'd be a great fit. A lot of people have talked about that on Twitter. A lot of analysts say that should be the favorite for where he goes and be a fun story-wise for to be the villain. Uh, number two, um, I don't. I haven't really heard people talk about this, but I think Villanova would be a great fit. Um, he was high school teammates with Justin Moore, who just declared um, or just came back to school. Um, and Villanova can make a push with NIL, uh, like an NIL incentive. Um, and yeah, I think being a dynamic duo with Justin Moore again, having that one-two punch would be really cool. I don't know how close they are, but I think that would be an interesting selling point. And then number one, Honestly, just kind of because of Bill Self and the past big men that they've had, uh, Kansas. I think David McCormick is a good example of like a back to the basket. What? They don't need <laughs> it. Like, yeah, I don't think they would need it, but they. I think they do a great job incorporating transits into their program. Um, maybe I would a little bit with saying that they were the best fit, but I think they're definitely in that upper tier of where of schools that he can go to. Especially if he wants to win, like yeah, it's like they're always a championship contender. I feel like. Um, Kentucky right, too could be interesting if Sheboy's gone. Yeah, it's very true. Uh, next, I didn't even make a list for this guy because it's LJ Cryer. I think he's very talented. I think he's good enough for he can make it work no matter where he goes. Um, yeah, I mean, if there are any schools, you or I'm surprised he transferred. I don't even, I'm, I'm flustered, man. I don't, I don't, I don't know, know why he left. I, think... I, I was looking into this. So, the basic the gist of it is he wants to play point guard, he doesn't want to play off ball, and evidently Scott Drew doesn't want him to be the primary ball handler. So, the biggest rumor is he's going to go to Kansas State and play point guard because Jerome Tang was the guy that recruited him to Baylor. Which makes a lot of sense oh. to me. And then losing Marquise Noel. So I'm going to go with that. Obviously, the in-conference transfer is a bit controversial. But also at this point, it's happened so many times. It's kind of whatever. Yeah. And if the coaches are doing that too, then it's much more reasonable for the players to also. Um, right. Speaking of Mar- Marquise Noel in Kansas State, um, I really quickly I want to touch on Max Aidsmith. I think he would fit really well at Kansas State, kind of be the next Marquise Noel. And then I also think at Kansas, he'd be a good fit with uh, Juwan Harris. Um, and then with LJ Carter leaving, I think he'd be a good fit at Baylor. So I think, I I know we were talking about a lot of players and a lot of coaches here, but I think it was all relevant to what we were saying. So we were just talking about these past players. So that's why I think Max Aismith would be a good player at Kansas, Kansas State, and Baylor. Aismith is a too. If they don't lose Strada, they, need the, they just need a bucket getter. Yeah, that's true. It could be that go-to score. All right. Um, so that covers some notable players and coaches in this situation. So let's talk about some teams we're either going to buy, sell, or hold in the next year. 
Let's start with the uh, American national champion. Uh, um, UConn. No better place. Um, I'm buying. I think like I don't know. I don't know if I'm buying to the extent that the public is buying. I feel like everyone has them as the number of consensus number one team next year, and yeah, I don't know. It's just so hard to repeat. They're like I don't know if they can do it, but they're gonna return a lot of the guys that they had. Uh, I mean, I think the only guy for sure gone is Jordan Hawkins, but you said Sonogo may come back. Andre Jackson said he's coming back unless he said, I believe the quote was he's coming back unless Dan Hurley tells him to leave. Klingon, it sounds like he's going to come back as well. So they're going to have a lot of the core still there. I, I don't know about the role players off the bench and stuff, but the core is going to be there. And I think they brought in, they have a five-star coming in too. So they're going to be really good. Yeah. I just don't know if they're going to be, I don't know. They very well could be the best team again, but it's so hard to repeat. I just don't know without Jordan Hawkins. But as a program going forward, I'm I'm buying. Yeah, I think you make a um a really fair counter argument about how it's really hard to repeat and Jordan Hawkins leaving. Um, so I do understand if you would hold our sell here, but I think for me it's an easy buy. Like it's a championship team that has a lot of room for improvement still. And now they have the March, or not, maybe not a lot of improvement, but definitely room for improvement. Um, and the March, they have the March Madness experience that they, that they didn't have going into last year. Um, and they'll be battle tested in the Big East, um, which is like we talked about earlier. It's going to be really good next year. It's going to be a gauntlet. Um, I don't know why I keep saying gauntlet. It's like what I'd never say, but I've said it twice now. All right, anyway, let's move on. Kansas, buy, sell, or hold. I'm, I'm buying kind of a, lazy reason to buy but i've just had so much trust in bill self in this program that i don't really see them like dropping off if that makes sense um yeah i didn't really write anything about kansas i uh, i condensed the list yeah, a little bit but we can keep going but yeah um, kansas is they're gonna be good i want to talk yeah. about the other other final four teams FAU, just rapid fire, FAU, Miami, San Diego State. FAU, I hope I'm wrong, but I'm selling. I think there's the expectations are just too high for them next year. Like, really? I think they'll, they'll I mean, be I really, really good, but they won't be like a lot, of, a lot of analysts right now are ranking them as like a top five and a top 10 team. Like, I don't think there's that's where the expectations should be. But that, then again, like, they made a they made a four run. They could do what Miami did last year, like kind of build off that and make a similar run next year. So I'm gonna sell, but I could easily see myself being wrong here if that makes sense. Yeah, I'm gonna call it a I'm gonna call it a hold for me because uh, like you said, they're they're getting all the buzz in the world right now and like deservingly so. But I'm still yeah. just a little skeptical that they're gonna be able to do it again. And like obviously like if my if they had the season they had like in like they only lost three games in regular season like that's very impressive and like had people known that was a final four team like they would have been ranked highly higher going into the tournament but it's also still like you have to consider it is still mid-major talent and i know we've been saying in the conference this conference that whatever but like 
Aren't they, they are a different company? Oh, sorry, I didn't think you were about to say Yeah, they, they are moving to the American, but it's all the same. <laughs> yeah. But, like, I just don't know if they're going to have their talent going to hold up in a tournament against when they start having to play some of the other teams. I mean, they were a benefit. They did benefit from an easier path. Not to say it was, like, the easiest path, but it was an easier path relative to years past. I mean, they didn't avoid the one seed, obviously, and then played. Where did they end up playing? Oh, uh, Kansas State, I guess, was really good, but whatever. I don't know. I don't even know what I'm saying at this point. But the point is, I think they're getting they're getting a little too much hype for my liking, but I do think they're really good. Because I do think, like, if Florida Atlantic, let's say they have the same exact season. Like, this season happened, right? They won the Final Four, or they made it to the Final Four, whatever, right? If they do the same exact thing they did this year in the regular season after doing this, they would probably end up with a two or three seed in the tournament. Yeah, that's a really good point. That's like, um, I guess they went, I compared them to Wichita State earlier, like they went undefeated their next year and they did get a one seed, but they had a, a much, much harder path than they yeah, had. Yeah, they gave Kentucky, it was messed up. Yeah, that was crazy. It, it, I, Kentucky was nowhere near an eight seed. Like I just remember like, that it happened and then everyone knew they were going to lose. Like yeah. it was like the most obvious upset ever. And then it happened. You're like, oh, yeah, that makes sense. Kentucky beat Wichita State. Yeah, and then Kentucky went all the way to the, the championship, and then they lost to UConn. A fun, a quick story. I, I won't, won't take too long, but, like, there was this guy. I still think about this sometimes. He had – he got a tattoo of, like, Kentucky 2014 champions before the tournament even started. And then they weren't, like, anywhere near – nobody thought they were anywhere near a championship team. And then they were their eight seed. They almost made it. And I still think about that sometimes, how he got that tattoo and then – and then they didn't win. But I guess a lot of people get tattoos and then prematurely lose. Yeah, I feel like um, you get at least one every every major sporting event. There's at least one person that does it. Yeah, I mean, maybe the logic is... That's just that you see, logic. too. Who knows how many random people are just doing it. Yeah, but, I mean, maybe they think it would be cheaper than afterwards, but I still, you don't get a tattoo. That's permanent decision. I don't um, think it's... I don't think the price fluctuates based on if they win. The ink doesn't get more <laughs> expensive. That's true. I've, I've never got inked up before, so I don't know. All right, next team. What do you th- are you buying, selling, or holding San Diego State? I think, mm, I think I'm uh, selling them, just because I feel like they're so old this year. I mean, I think they're gonna almost certainly take a step back next year, and that's not to say as a program they're not gonna be able to, but I just think. The Mountain West sucks, and they might move conferences. They might not, whatever. I just don't know if they ha- they're going to have the year-to-year consistency. And I think they're still capable of having good years like they've had and have had in years past. But I just don't know. If- I don't think they're going to be very good next year is the short answer. Yeah. Um, I'm all selling, like – I see a path where they could be good because they're, like you said, they're an old team and they're returning five of their top six scores. But I think the field in general is going to be a lot stronger next year. And even if they get better, I don't see San Diego State like going as far as they did. I could see FAU making it, 
as far as I did, but I don't really see San Diego State doing the same thing, which I'm sure if any San Diego State fans heard that, they'd be a little upset because they just beat FAU, but that's just the way I see it next year. Um, and like you said, like the Mountain West, you're not as battle-tested as – not that – I mean, in the majors, like you can be great and it doesn't matter who you're playing during the year, but I don't think they're as battle-tested as um, some other power conference teams are, which will affect them more so next year. Um, and then the last one, um, Miami, I'm buying simply because, like I said, this is the best example of, of a team adapting to the NIL era and the transporter era, era, and they're using that to their advantage. Um, they have a Hall of Fame coach, Jim Laranega. If Isaiah Wong returns, I'm definitely going to buy. And they're a very talented team that, that just, like I said, they've adapted to this new sport very well. Yeah, I agree. Uh, I was I had Miami as a buy as well. I just think they have the coach, they have the system in place to get players, and they've been able to do it the last two years. There's no reason to think they're not going to be able to do it next year too. And not to say they're going to make the Final Four, but just like I think they'll certainly be in the in contention. Yeah. Okay, so I know we had some other teams here, but let's just quickly say like. One team we're buying, one team we're selling, and one team we're holding from the rest of the from like the rest of the list because we I think we went a little overboard with how many teams we put down here. So just to not have the podcast go on, yeah, drag on too much. For um, my my buy, I think we can both do our buys and then we'll just go through it. For my buy, I'm going with the Duke Blue Devils. This is probably the easiest pick on the board, honestly, yeah, but. I- Obviously, they're bringing guys back, which is not something Duke's done a lot in the last however many years. And they're also bringing in a phenomenal recruiting class. And I like Shire. He's more likable than Coach K. And (laughs) I think Duke's going to be a consensus top five team going into next year. And I think they're going to live up to the expectation and be a top five team. Yeah, I agree. I mean, they return... Tyrus Proctor, they return their glue guy, Mitchell. Who knows if uh, Kyle Filipowski. If Filipowski comes back, they're going to be really, really good. Yeah. And, like, you talk about the phenomenal recruiting class. Like, they're getting, I'm pretty sure, they're getting five guys of the top 20 recruits, which is crazy. That's, I got to never really, I don't know if that's happened before. Um, If there's anyone who's done it, it's Duke, but. Yeah, I think trust uh, Northbrook, Illinois native, John Shire, GBN. Um, yeah, I think there's not too much to say about them. Like you said, they're like probably the easiest buy from the rest of the list. Maybe maybe the Golden Eagles, a Marquette maybe, but I think yeah. it's the easiest. But the Golden Eagles are at a high price right now. Um, and a buy that I mentioned that we haven't talked about yet, I'll go with Purdue. Um, like I, mentioned I was, earlier. I was really close to saying it, and I just couldn't do it. <laughs> yeah, it went, to, it went to felt right, but I, you, you say your thing, but I think they're gonna be good too. Yeah, I mean, like we talked about earlier, they had a freshman backcourt last year, um, Fletcher Lawyer and Brandon Smith, and they're gonna use it as an opportunity to growth to get better. They're gonna get a lot better. They'll probably get Edie back, and like I said, I have so much faith in Matt Painter. I think he's the most underrated coach in the country, and. I think they're going to go – I'm. it's way too early to say if they're going to be like a championship-level team, but I think they could go on a similar like redemption path that Virginia did in 2019 where they lost to, um, lost to UMBC 
and then they won the title next they're year. not doing they're not doing all that they'll be good I'm, I'm i'm not saying they are but i'm i'm not saying that it's impossible at the same time like i'm not picking purdue as my championship championship team and i probably won't next year but i do think it's a very realistic possibility that they go down the same path um it's all right, not impossible i just don't I don't know. I have a hard time seeing a Zach Eagle team winning a national championship. Yeah, actually, that's a really good point. I think the problem with their team last year was they really only had one way to win, which is just get the ball to Zach Eady, and if he gets doubled, kick it out to the shooters. They couldn't really adapt to any other different styles. Um, but that being said, I think the X factor, I guess, is their, their guard play just being more reliable in March. Like I feel like with a lot of these Purdue teams – they have the best big men, but their guards are a little susceptible to, um, I guess, just not playing as well as they played in the regular season during March. And I think part of that's just the Big Ten style too. Um, but yeah, I think I still I'm still buying on Purdue. I think they're I think they're gonna have a good year, year next year. Yeah. Um, so for my it? my hold, I'm gonna go with another blue blood. I'm going to go with the Kentucky Wildcats because, honestly, they've been really bad, like, objectively, by the Kentucky standard. And even by, like, other standards, they've been very underperforming the last, I don't know, five, six years. I mean, Cal winning, I mean, they won one game in March Madness this year, but besides that, they hadn't won since 2012. Anthony Davis. No, I mean I don't even mean the whole thing. I mean just winning a game. They hadn't they didn't win in 2021. Oh, they didn't oh, win in they didn't win in 2019. Eight, I think. It was either 2018 or whatever. A long Busted. time for Kentucky to go not winning an NCAA tournament game. And mm-hmm. people were kind of calling for Cal's and uh at least at times last year. And obviously he's getting up there in age. I mean, Coach K retired, Roy Williams retired. Jim Beheim retired. Got slash fired technically, but beyond the point, I feel like he's kind of one of the last, one of the last few of like this older generation of coaches, and I think it's kind of put up or shut up time for Kentucky, and I'm not sure. I'm worried because I think they've had the talent there before, and maybe he just isn't adapting enough to the modern game, but also they have three of the top four recruits coming in. So if he can't figure it out with these guys, then he's not sure he's going to be able to figure it out in the rest of his career. And that's not like a knock on him. I think it's just hard to sustain success for so long. But I think it'll be an interesting year for Kentucky next year. Yeah, I agree. Um, Talk about that older generation. Rick Pitino is getting a new job when he's like 70-something years old. Yeah. Oh, um, but yeah, I'm actually selling at Kentucky. That's the team that's going to talk about sell basically for the exact same reasons that you said. I feel like Calipari's got to prove himself, and I haven't really seen enough in recent years to believe that he's going to turn around. But obviously, he does have the talent to, like, on paper, there's no doubt they're a top 10, maybe even a top five team in the country next year at Kentucky. But I'm going to sell just because I have lost trust in Calipari. I do think it could still be good, though. And I, I like Calipari as a coach and a person in general, but I'm selling for the same reasons that you talked about. Um, and then 
this we talked about Gonzaga for a long time earlier, but I'm actually gonna hold. Um, I hope I'm, I want to buy but just because I want to. I want to root for buy. you. It's only because, I guess, after you kind of talked about it more earlier, I didn't realize they were as talented as you explained. But I just think there's so many questions and so many kind of unknown variables around this team that we don't really know what the product is going to look like going into next year. Like they have a lot of work to do this all season. And I'm sure I'd have a better, I'm sure before the season starts, I'm, I'm already leaning towards a buy right now, but I'm sure before the season starts, I'll buy. But right now I'll hold just because you really don't know what this team is going to look like yet. Yeah, I mean, I'm not going to disagree. There's a lot of there's a lot of variables that are unanswered at the moment, but I'm optimistic. Coach Few will have it all sorted out just in time. So I'm buying on optimism, but I agree there's a reason for caution for sure. But yep. I don't think the people that are calling for panic and saying everyone's leaving, I think that's a bit too extreme. Yeah, they'll they'll be good. The, the, they're never going to, at least in the near future, they're not going to reach that level of of panic and despair, I guess. Uh, and then who are you selling? I'm selling the Alabama Crimson Tide because, <laughs> honestly, to me, like, I just don't know if Alabama's ever going to have as talented as a team as they had this year. And I just don't know if they'll ever get a better opportunity than they had to succeed. And it kind of just felt like, Obviously, Alabama, like, you're a football school. Like, your fans aren't, like, obviously you have basketball fans, but people aren't going to Alabama for basketball games or coming for football. And, like, I just feel like this was their opportunity to kind of put them officially on the basketball map. I mean, I don't even think they had to win the championship, but I think at the bare minimum they make a Final Four run, just especially with how everything opened up. I mean, they were the number one team going into the tournament, but then everything opened up and they – pretty much had as easy as a path as you could have asked for for Mm -hmm. I guess it's a a team you've seen in a long time and obviously ultimately they don't do it they lost to San Diego State who is a very good team not to take that away from them I just feel like this was kind of their moment they had veterans they had a deep roster and they had a number top three pick in the NBA draft like I just don't know if it gets better than that and I just have I wouldn't worry if I was an Alabama fan that they're going to start going back closer to the mediocrity that they've been most of their lives. Yeah, um, I agree with your perspective. I think you make a lot of good points there. They're definitely not going to be like a championship. At least the expectation is that they won't be a championship level team going to next year and probably not anytime in the near future. Like this was their biggest opportunity and they didn't blow it. They still went the second weekend, but I'm sure every Alabama fan they, go they had to at least make the final four to not consider that a failure. Oh, yeah, I guess they I guess yeah, they definitely should have gone farther than they did. But I actually have Alabama as a buy. I don't think they'll win the championship or have those type of expectations, like I said, but I've been a huge fan of Nate Oates for a while. I really liked him a lot at Buffalo. I was a huge fan of them. And I thought wherever school he goes to next, he's gonna do a great job there. And He's done a great job at Alabama, but obviously the off the court stuff is that's definitely some cause for concern. And if you're selling yeah. for that reason, I don't. Know. I mean, that's also, um, that really wasn't my argument, but also, yeah, you handled that very poorly. If you're just yeah. also throwing something else on there, 
Yeah, but I think the main three reasons I'm buying is because this is a really young team last year. This team gets a lot older this year. Um, they have more continuity, like we talked about with a lot of these other big time programs. The continuity aspect. Um, they get older. They're not gonna be back. Clowney's gone. Brandon Miller's gone. Javon Quinterly's gone. I think Quinterly's gone. I thought he's coming back. I thought he said he was leaving, but like, maybe I read that wrong. I think Clowney might. But whatever. But regardless, I still think they'll have a lot of talent. Um, and now like they kind of. Obviously, Brandon Miller is a huge loss, but you kind of have like the addition by subtraction in terms of the off-the-court off drama. Like, they don't have to deal with all everything that's going on, all like the negative scrutiny that they 100% deserve. They deserve every bit of criticism for like what happened, but they're not going to have to deal with that next year, and they're going to be an older team that with more experience playing together. So I think they obviously won't have the same level of hype and expectation that they had this year, but I still think they'll be a really solid team next year especially with NATO's coaching. I think he's, a, I, I said Matt Painter was the number one most underrated coach in the country. I, I've always thought that NATO's is number two. So I have trust in, trust in those coaches and I think I have enough trust in the players they have too. So anything more you want to talk about? That's all I got. Yeah, I guess. Thank you to yeah. the listeners for getting through yeah. this. Yeah, <laughs> if you listened all the way through, I've, a lot of appreciation. I can't imagine like three or I can't imagine this all being one episode. Is what I was about to say, but thank you for listening. Uh, if you did listen, both of us appreciate it.